0: If you take someone who who believes who intuitively believes in a conspiracy, so for instance, someone who is works in a company or in a government, and they've seen that their bosses, uh, their boss was you know shredding documents or was doing something really fishy, and they have good evidence that that some something really bad is going on, their reaction is going to be to shut up. They're going to be afraid for their jobs, you know, in some places for their lives. And if you if you can contrast that to the behavior of conspiracy theorists who don't have actual you know perceptual or you kind know, of firsthand evidence of, of of a conspiracy going on, then these people they tend not to be afraid, uh, you know they can say oh you know I believe uh, the CIA orchestrated 9 11 and they're this all powerful evil you know institution, and yet they're not gonna kill me if I say this, and uh, ironically that means that in a way the more vocal conspiracy uh, conspiracy the more Everywhere it is, the less likely it is to be true in a way. <laughs> because <Right. laughs> if it were, if it, I mean, at least when it comes to an actor that still has a lot of power now, the more huge the claims are, the less likely it is to be correct. Otherwise, you know, you would not be out there saying that.
1: Hey, listeners, Rob here, head of a search at 80,000 Hours. I feel like I've been hearing more and more about misinformation and disinformation in recent years. And uh, I just checked Google Trends, uh, which confirmed that those search terms are about five times as popular now as they were back in 2017. In 2023, the discussion around misinformation and disinformation shifted, I think, uh, to focus on how generative AI or future super persuasive AI might change the game and make it extremely hard to figure out what's what's going on in the world, or uh, alternatively, extremely easy to mislead people into believing convenient lies. I just saw, actually, the uh, the World Economic Forum's Global Risk Survey of 1,400 experts, policymakers, and industry leaders ranked misinformation and disinformation as the number one global risk over the next two years, uh, ranking it ahead of war, environmental problems, and other threats from AI. Personally, I worry that these fears are a bit exaggerated and misunderstand how misinformation does and doesn't work. So I was delighted to interview cognitive scientist Hugo Mercier, whose research on how people form beliefs and figure out who to trust has led him to a very different worldview, one in which misinformation really is barely a problem today and is unlikely to be a problem anytime soon. As he claims in his book, Not Born Yesterday, Hugo believes we seriously underrate the perceptiveness and judgement of ordinary people. At this point, you might be thinking, if people are so smart on the whole, how come so many fall for lies about vaccines or financial scams or buy into astrology or bogus medical treatments or vote for policies that I think are are really daft? And that's exactly actually what I put to Hugo, uh, the toughest cases of people falling for bad ideas that I could think of uh, to test whether they really indicate widespread gullibility and if not, how Hugo would make sense of all of them. We then probe the different stories people have offered for how AI could lead misinformation to get radically worse, and try to see how well they held up. Hugo thinks they're mostly nonsense. Uh, Well, I'll just say I'm on the skeptical side. Personally, I think this interview is a very useful corrective to some ideas that have merit, but are also very popular uh, and mostly going unchallenged at the moment. So without further ado, I bring you Hugo Mercier. Today I'm speaking with Hugo Mercier. Hugo is a Cognitive Scientist and Research Director at the CNRS at Institut Jean-Nicot Paris, where he works with the Evolution and Social Cognition team. He's published over 100 papers and book chapters, mostly focused on two key topics. Firstly, the function and workings of reasoning, and secondly, how we evaluate communicated information. Uh, On the second, he's also the author of Not Born Yesterday, The Science of Who We Trust and What We Believe, which came out in 2020. Not Born Yesterday attempts to explain how we decide who we can trust and what we should believe. And Hugo argues that we actually don't credulously accept whatever we're told, even if those views are supported by the majority of people or by prestigious, charismatic individuals. He also argues that mass persuasion, uh, be it by religious leaders or politicians or advertisers, is very difficult to pull off and almost never leads to big changes in public opinion. On the contrary, uh, he thinks that we are pretty skilled at figuring out how to trust and what to believe, and if anything, we're much too hard uh, rather than too easy to influence. Uh, Thanks for coming on the podcast, Hugo. Thank you for having me, Rob. I hope to talk about how people decide who to trust and where people really do go wrong in forming their beliefs. But first, I want this to be a subtle interview because I feel like the truth on this topic feels to me like it kind of has to be somewhere somewhere in the middle. You know, human beings can be surprisingly savvy, but also screw up to to their detriment in meaningful ways. Uh, If only just because, you know, being right about everything in this in this messy, complex world is, is an exceedingly hard thing to do. Um, and, and I actually think the, the book, if you read it carefully, has a very kind of subtle message, a much more subtle message than, than just a one paragraph summary would allow. It admits a lot of complexity in how we form beliefs in different situations and our performance in different domains. But maybe just to start, what, what are some sources that have advocated the view that human beings are really gullible, uh, the view that you wanted to uh, the, the book to challenge?
0: So historically, uh, this has been mostly a view upheld by more kind of right-wing thinkers. That goes back to ancient Greece. People who wanted to have reasons for rejecting uh, popular opinion, for not uh, not having uh, you know a lot of people vote and ignoring the people. So that was one of the reasons that these people would, would give uh, would be that uh, people were stupid, they're gullible. Uh, if they could vote, then they would vote for the first demagogue uh, that would come around and that would lead to a, that would lead to a disaster. And more recently, that view has also been advocated on the left for sort of opposite reasons, like the left would have claimed that people are being oppressed by the bourgeoisie and by the dominant classes, and the, the only reason they're not rising up uh, against, uh, against this domination is that they have sort of absorbed and imbibed the dominant ideology uh, that is put forward by the dominant classes. So that's one
1: common stereotype of uh, you know people as being not very savvy, not very engaged, like easy to to, to lead by the nose. It's a, I think there's kind of also a stereotype of human beings as really stubborn about their beliefs and just kind of sticking to what they the beliefs that they've already committed to and that they've already said publicly, and you know throwing out evidence that is con- that that they, they conflicts with that uh, because it's inconvenient for them. This sort of confirmation bias idea. I think you want to say. On balance, like that stereotype is actually probably closer to the truth than the other one, although people are in many areas like actually pretty savvy about uh, taking in new information as well. Yeah, would you you say you kind of agree with the maybe stubbornness stereotype as, as more sound?
0: Yes, especially that's something we might revisit later, especially in the really kind of bizarre informational environment we live in in which we are bombarded with information and it's often hard for us to tell, you know, where the information is coming from. You know, can, we can't really exchange arguments with the, with the people trying to convince us of things. And in that kind of setting, it makes sense to be uh, kind of rationally skeptical. So you're just, you're just going to mostly um, ignore things that disagree with your point of view. Uh, but that's mostly a stance that is dominant because we live in this in this weird environment. Like when it comes to everyday life, when you talk to your colleagues, to your friends, to your family, Uh, there you're just mostly rational. So you change your mind when you should and you don't when you shouldn't.
1: It's interesting that there is this stereotype that people are stubborn about their beliefs and kind of unreasonable about them. Uh, But it is possible to kind of steel man that approach or to, to defend it as... In an information environment that is very challenging and somewhat uh, like reasonably hostile, that could actually just be the the, the optimal strategy, as, as we'll explain a little bit uh, throughout the interview. So, yeah, the, the the three reasons why I was really drawn to doing this interview: uh, the first is just reading the book. I found it was generating a lot of new thoughts for me, uh, even 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 in places where I wasn't convinced. I was finding it super super generative. The second is that I, I've I've kind of long argued, I've I've long had the opinion that in terms of persuading other people. Simply making good sound arguments as clearly as you can is an underrated, an underappreciated approach. There's this idea out there that you know the best way to persuade people of things is to engage in tricky behavior where you try to influence people subconsciously using the right kind of words or talking to them in the right colored room. Uh, and, and my view is that if if the people you're talking to are worth their salt, and if you think your views are actually sound and true, that it's just underrated. Uh, you know that 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 sort of tricky approach is is, is overrated and and really really convinces people. Mm-hmm. And the third reason is because, you know, these topics are getting a lot of renewed discussion this year because of advances in AI and LLMs, which have made a lot of people worry that we could kind of see a breakdown in the ability of ordinary people to distinguish truth from fiction, because so much of the content that they might be exposed to could be this kind of cleverly produced propaganda or marketing or otherwise uh, stuff made by LLMs with a goal or or LLMs or other generative, you know, visual models uh, with the goal of convincing people to believe some or other falsehood that the LLM operator is is keen on. Mm Um, and my take, and I think yours as well, is that this is a legitimate worry, and you know, I'm glad that people are talking and thinking about it and trying to find ways of tackling the new problems that are going to come up, but that the risk is actually a little bit more limited than some people think, and maybe we don't expect to see the worst-case scenarios that people describe actually come to pass. So um, with that bit of framing out of the way, what's the fundamental evolutionary argument that it's not really possible for humans to evolve to be gullible or foolish or easily persuaded of things by, by other people?
0: So the, the basic argument is one that was laid out by uh, actually Richard Dawkins and a colleague uh, in, the early, in the 70s and then the 80s. It goes something like, something like this. So if, uh, within any species or, or across species, if you have two individuals that communicate, you have like senders of information and receivers of information, uh, both have to benefit from communication. Like the sender has to, on average, benefit from communication. Otherwise, they would evolve to stop sending messages. But the receiver also has, on average, to benefit from communication. Otherwise, they would simply evolve uh, to stop receiving messages the same way as, you know, if you have like cave-dwelling animals might lose their vision because vision is pointless. If most of the signal you were getting from others was was noise or or it was even worse, it was harmful, then you would just evolve to, to stop receiving these signals.
1: Yeah. So in the book, you point out that a very natural way, like you having said that, a lot of people will be thinking about persuasion and gullibility and convincingness and perceptiveness as a sort of evolutionary arms race between people's ability to trick one another and people's ability to detect trickery from others and and, and not be deceived.
0: But your take is that this is kind of, this is sort of the wrong way to think about it. Can, can you explain why? Yes, no, I think th- this view of, of an arms race, uh, it is it is tempting, but it's mistaken in, in that it starts from a place of great gullibility. It's like, you know, as if people started being gullible and then they evolved to be increasingly skeptical and so to increasingly reject messages. Whereas in fact, what we're seeing you know, hypothetically, because we don't have, we don't exactly know how our ancestors used to communicate, but if we extrapolate based on, on other great apes, for instance, we can see that they have a communication system that is much more limited than ours. And they're much more skeptical. Like for instance, if you take a chimpanzee and you try pointing to help the chimpanzee figure out where something is, the chimpanzee is not going to pay attention to you as a rule. They're very, very you know, very, very skeptical, very defiant in a way, because they live in an environment in which they have little reason to trust each other. By contrast, if you take humans as the as as an endpoint, I mean, obviously, chimpanzees are, are not our ancestors, but assuming our, our last common ancestor was was more similar to the chimps that, than it was to humans, if you take humans as the opposite endpoint, we rely hugely on communication, like we we like you know for everything we do in our everyday life and. And That has likely been true for for most of our uh, recent evolution, and so that means that we have become able to to accept more information. Like we take in vastly more information from others uh, than any other great ape.
1: So, so one take would be that you need discerningness in order to be able to make the information useful to to the recipient, because so that they can dismiss messages that are bad. But and, and there's there's kind of truth to that. But the, the other framing is just you need. Discerningness in order to make communication take place at all. Because if you were undiscerning, you would simply close your ears and, like many other species, basically just not listen to or like pay no attention. Do not process the information coming from other members of your species. So it's only because we were able to evolve the ability to tell truth from fiction that communication evolved as a human habit at all. Is, Is that basically
0: it? Yes. No. Exactly. You know, it's it's really striking in in the domain of the evolution of communication how you can find communication that works, even, even within um, species, for instance, that you think would be very adversarial. Like if you take you know, a typical example, is kind of some gazelles and, and some of their predators, like packs of dogs. You think, well, they're pure adversaries. The dogs want to eat the gazelle. The gazelle don't want to be, doesn't want to be eaten. But in fact, uh, some of gazelles have evolved this behavior of starting where they jump without going anywhere. They just jump on the same place. And by doing that, they're signaling to the dogs that they're really fit and that they would likely outrun the dogs. And this signaling is possible only because this starting is a reliable indicator that you would outrun the dogs. Like, it's impossible if you're a if you're sick gazelle, if you're an old gazelle, if you're a young gazelle, if you're a gazelle with a broken leg, you can't do it. And so the dogs can believe, so to speak, the gazelles because the gazelles are sending it on a signal. By contrast, an example that is a bit kind of sad is, in a way, is there's a conflict between uh, mothers in most mammal species, but it's also true in humans. There's a conflict between the mother and the, and the, the embryo or the foetus, and the fetus is trying to grab as you know a lot of resources, more than, than maybe what the mother would be willing to, to share. And the two of them have a kind of tug of war in which both produce like vast amounts of hormones to try to, to get as much as, as resources as possible for the fetus and to give only a moderate, like a moderate, reasonable amount uh, from the point of view of the mother. And because the fetus doesn't have like an honest manner of signaling, look, this is how much resources I need there is a complete lack of communication so the the amount of of resources that the mother gives is the same even though like the, the amount of of hormones that is produced on both sides is massive so you have no progress no communication even in a system in which things should work really well because you know you have a mother and, and her, you know her unborn child and yet because they have no way of of honestly signaling there's no good communication going on yeah, yeah. Just to just to help explain that a little bit,
1: you have this issue. I think this might have come up on the show before. Um, between a mother and their unborn child, you have this issue that the. Uh, the mother has more interest in their future reproduction um, or, or their future reproductive potential than the baby has in their mother's future reproductive potential because the unborn baby will not share 100% of its genes with the future siblings or the future half-siblings. For, for, for complicated reasons that we won't go into, the, the baby wants to maybe absorb more resources than is optimal from the mother's point of view and the mother might want to deny them resources that the, 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 the unborn infant wants. And this creates a conflict in which I guess they can't that the baby cannot create incredibly communicate accurately uh, what level of resources it actually needs to be healthy uh, because it always has this incentive to lie
0: exactly and you see the same thing with, you know, in baby birds baby birds you know trying to get food from from the mother bird when the mother bird comes to come back to the nest and she has to decide you know which which uh, which baby bird to give the the worm to or whatever and they're all trying to shed as lightly as possible even though that is actually bad because that increases the predation risk but there's no way for the for the babies to honestly signal you know, like look, look I'm the one who really needs the food or I'm the one who's going to to make the best to make the most of the food
1: Yeah. So a very natural response to this sort of evolutionary reasoning is that it it would be right if we were living in an information environment that resembled the one our ancestors existed in. But the modern world, as you were alluding to earlier, is so different from what our pre-industrial ancestors lived in. You know, be they farmers or hunter gatherers, because today you know we're bombarded with more claims about more things by by more people than 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 we ever have been before. And un- unlike in the ancestral environment, most of the people who are making these claims at us, uh, we've never met, and we're not necessarily going to meet them again. And so, plenty of people who uh, who are kind of kind of communicate at us in one world might be trying to take advantage um, of us. Or take advantage of the enormous kind of amounts of research that they've been able to do in order to figure out how to better persuade other people of whatever it is they want them to to believe. Sort of marketing, marketing experts and so on. And so this sort of explanation for how the way that things uh, happened in the past might not be the way things are working out today uh, is often called evolutionary uh, mismatch. Uh, And I think a famous example of this is with with diet. So it's it's true that our ancestors are very good at figuring out what a healthy diet was to eat in the environment in which they existed. Uh, But now in the modern world, we kind of have to contend with nacho cheese flavored uh, Doritos uh, invented by thousands of food scientists. And we can't necessarily just rely on our instincts about what is tasty to guide us towards a healthy diet. So yeah, what would you say to someone who raised this objection that you might be accurately describing history, but uh, but are you just describing the world of today.
0: No, I completely agree that I just uh, because you're giving this example, it, it makes me think that the mismatch isn't that dramatic in the sense that, and the environment we live in is crazy in, in nutritional terms in which you can have like an infinite amount of calories every day for you know, a relatively small amount of money. And in spite of that, uh, people, man, even people who are overweight, like unless you, you weigh a, a ton, uh, literally, it means you're only missing your calorie target by like 10% or something. So it's not that bad in a way, given how, how much temptation there is and, and how easy it is to, to get to get kind of food that's not great for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in that domain where actually we're not clearly we could be doing better, but we're also much less worse than, than we might you know, one might have expected. And I think to some extent the same is true for, for, for information. So clearly we're making bad decisions in informational terms. Sometimes we're accepting uh, bad information that we shouldn't accept. I don't think that's very common, but you know it happens. A lot of the time, what happens is we reject information that we should have accepted. Like essentially, if you take all the all the bad things that people are accused of believing, like you know being vaccine hesitant, believing that the last elections in the U.S. were not were not when were fraudulent, uh, believing in conspiracy theories, all of these people have heard uh, the correct version somewhere, and so in all of these cases, the problem is also that they have rejected something that was that was accurate. And I think that's the main problem with the uh, informational environment we live in now. And at any rate, if we want to understand and to make sense of how we are uh, reacting to the, envir- to the uh, informational environment we live in now, we have to understand how our cognition evolves. And our cognition evolved for a different environment. And so if we understand how our cognition works now, we can understand what when, when it gets right and what it can uh, sometimes get wrong in the current environment.
1: Okay, um, we'll come back to a bunch of those themes uh, throughout throughout the conversation and and see kind of how we have adapted to the to the modern, more challenging um, junk information environment in which we find ourselves. But let, let's push on to kind of the the core um, the core kind of descriptive information in, in, in the book. So you spend a, spend a lot of time laying out the main principles by which we decide how to incorporate new information into our beliefs. and and you call that the general approach that we take mechanisms of open vigilance. Can you break down this concept of open vigilance for
0: us? Yeah, so it, it comes from the, the concept of epistemic vigilance and it's really the same thing. It's just kind of rebranding. So the the open comes from the fact that uh, all of these mechanisms as, as we were hinting at earlier, their main function really is to help us be more uh, be more open, be more accepting of information, be influenced by others uh, when uh, when they're right and, and when we're wrong. That is the ultimate function. like we start from a place of you know we just have our own beliefs that we form through perception and inference, and then the more open we are, the more we'll be able to benefit from the fact that other people have different knowledge, you know, they have different information from what we have, and we can use that. And the vigilance comes from the fact that this openness, as we're also kind of saying earlier, this openness is only made possible by the fact that we are vigilant. So it is because we check what people tell us and we check you know, whether we can trust them or not, uh, that we can afford to be open to what they're telling us.
1: Yeah. So in what ways would you say that we are open to new information?
0: Well, for instance, when someone gives you a good argument, people, you know, tend to change their minds. So it's something they've studied a lot uh, in the lab, in which we we give people like small logical or or mathematical problems, to which there is a perfect argument, like you can just demonstrate the correct answer in a relatively easy manner, even though most people get it wrong originally, and and they it's like you know like one of these kind of trick questions, people have a very strong intuition that they that they got it right, and in spite of that, when you give them a good argument, uh, then change their minds quite easily. So that's that's. In a way, the argumentation is the is the way in which you can you can exert the most maybe dramatic changes of mind when you have arguments that are strong enough.
1: Yeah. I mean, many people will have the idea that giving people good arguments for beliefs is not always that effective. And often people will throw out good arguments on spurious grounds or just because they conflict with what they already believe. I think you have this example in in the book of people who've studied whether people sensibly incorporate new information uh, in, in, in changing their beliefs. And I think many listeners will, like me, have heard of this experiment where people who supported the Iraq war were told later on that uh, WMDs were never found in Iraq, and in fact, they, they didn't exist. And that this shockingly caused them to become more in favor of, of the Iraq war rather than less, as, as, as you might expect. And I think you point out that there's been a whole slate of experiments of this type done, and that was actually the only case in which people's beliefs shifted, updated in the wrong direction relative to what you might expect. You know, in some cases they didn't move so much, uh, but uh, that was the one case out of uh, dozens in which it went in the wrong direction. Um, do, do you think to some extent people are maybe cherry picking cases where folks are resistant to arguments and they ignore just the familiar everyday cases when arguments persuade us sensibly all the time?
0: Yes, yes. I think there are there are at least two documented cases of, of this backfire effect. There's another one with vaccine hesitancy, I think, uh, for one specific vaccine and one specific range of the population. But, But yes, I mean, there are kind of now dozens, if not hundreds of experiments showing that in the overwhelming, or like the quasi, you know, entirety of the cases, when you give people a good argument for something, something that is based in facts, that they would, you know, some some authority that they trust, um, then they are going to, to change their mind. Maybe not enough, not as much as we'd like to, but the change will be in the direction that you would expect. Yeah. Um, so that's really, and that's in a way that's that's the sensible thing to do. And 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 you're right that both kind of lay people and and, and professional psychologists. Are and have been and still are very much attracted to demonstrations that human adults are, you know, irrational and a bit silly because because it's more interesting. Like if you show, well, look, people can speak. You know, it's like the most amazing thing. Maybe in the in, you know in the biological world we have language. It's like, well, sure, obviously we have language. I mean, but if you say, oh, well, sometimes you know, one times every maybe fifty thousand word there's a word that you can't remember. You have a tip of the tongue. Oh my God, this is amazing. You know, how are we brains? You know, working so poorly. So yeah, we are attracted by mistakes, by errors, by by kind of silly behavior, but that doesn't mean this is representative at all.
1: Yeah, you have the example in the um, book of you know if if someone asks you to estimate the length of the Nile and then you give a a a length in meters and then you're told well actually this other person who's you know just as informed as you estimated this other number uh, would you like to update your your guess? Then people tend to move about half
0: the way towards the view of the other person, which is actually very sensible. They only move one third on average. So people are a bit conservative. They don't, they don't treat the other person uh, to be, by default to be as knowledgeable as they are. But if you let people talk to each other, then the one who actually was the most knowledgeable will tend to exert more influence. So when people can actually say, well, you know, look, I know because I've been to Egypt, because I'm, you know, I study Egypt, because I've read about this recently, then the other person will be, will be convinced.
1: Yeah. So that's a somewhat easy case because it's not bringing in more complicated social factors and people are unlikely to try to trick you about the length of the Nile. Uh, so it's a more straightforward one. But it suggests that in a simple case where we don't have to worry about these other manipulative effects that our behavior, our updating is actually pretty pretty on point.
0: Yeah, no, I think my favorite example, because you know when I present these, these experiments that I was briefly describing earlier about with these small logical or mathematical problems, People will say, well, you know, but people don't care. I mean, that's kind of what, what you were saying earlier as well. You know, you have no emotional attachment to the answer to these problems. Like, it really doesn't matter to you whether it's five or ten or whatever. And, and the, my favorite counter example is uh, early early in the, in the 20th century, some of the greatest minds in, in, in Europe, you know, like Bertrand Russell and David Hilbert and, 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 and Whitehead and others, were trying to develop, uh, you know, to make things kind of simple, logical foundations for mathematics and they were consumed by that. It was their life's project. They had devoted, you know, years and years to the project. They had written, you know, thousands of pages. It was it was really, you know, these people were really intense. Uh, and then uh, at some point, they read uh, Godel's uh, demonstration, his uh, incompleteness theorem, showing that you can't do it. And immediately they get, oh, yeah, we can't. We give up. Like, like immediately they read it, and then they realize, okay, well, he's right. What, we're tra- what we've been spending most of our lives doing is, is not doable, and we're giving up immediately. So so even if the arguments are strong enough, even if the, the issue is as emotionally you know, salient as you can possibly imagine, people are still going to accept the arguments.
1: Okay, so, so that's, uh, that's, that's openness. In, in what ways would you say that we are vigilant?
0: Well, in a way, I mean, this, this openness also demonstrates vigilance. Because if you had given uh, you know, Russell a, a really crap argument in favor of, of the incompleteness theorem, he would not have accepted it. So people are, are only open to the extent that they are vigilant. And there are many ways in this, you know, this, this vigilance is, is, is exerted, you know, in, in terms of how we decide, you know, who we trust, how we decide what information is more likely to be plausible or not. I think the most basic mechanism is uh, what I've called plausibility checking. So essentially, whenever you encounter communicated information, when you hear something, when you read something, the first thing your brain does is comparing that to what you already know. And in a way, just in order to understand what you're told, you need to have some background beliefs. You need to compare that to what, you're, what you already know. So if you tell me there's an elephant in my, in my backyard, I have to form a representation of that and I have to realize that it kind of clashes with most of what I know about elephants and, and backyards. And this, this first layer is already a very strong kind of defense mechanism in a way because by rejecting anything that doesn't fit with our beliefs... Uh, it makes it really hard for other people to make us believe things that would be bad for us. Like if sometimes our, our own beliefs will be mistaken, and that's a problem That because we've you know, we've made a mistake on our own. But then the issue will, is not going to be communication per se. Fortunately, there are ways of, of overcoming this plausibility checking such that you can end up accepting even information that would challenge your, your prior beliefs, challenge things that you already uh, thought to be true. And broadly, there are two two main things. One is argumentation, as we are mentioning. So even if if someone tells you something that you disagree with, if they have a good enough argument, uh, you might change your mind. And the other is trust. So if you know, if I believe that a given computer is better than another, but then a friend of mine who I know to be a computer expert tells me that you know I, I have it wrong, uh, I might I might trust in that person.
1: So you might think that. There's this, there's
0: this paradox that if we encounter
1: information that conflicts with our current beliefs, then we're more inclined to be skeptical of it and potentially where one of the options on the table is just to throw it out and say, I'm ignoring this, this new information because it doesn't pass the plausibility checking stage, because it's too in conflict with other things that I already believe. And that creates potentially this loop where you could get stuck because you're just unwilling to update on the basis of any information that, that conflicts. So why doesn't that create this sort of pigheaded uh, unwillingness to ever change your,
0: change your ideas? So if, if things work well enough, it shouldn't make you change your mind, but it shouldn't reinforce your beliefs either. So if I believe that, you know, to go back to your example, earlier if I believe the Nile is, you know, 5,000 miles long and you tell me it's 3,000 miles long and it, you know, there's a bit of a clash between, between our two beliefs, I'm not going to, maybe I'm, at, at worst I'm going to ignore what you're telling me, but I'm not going to believe now that the Nile is 6,000 miles long. So at worst I'm going to get stuck, but it's not going to make things worse. It's just going, it's just going to fail to make things better.
1: So our defensive posture is that if something conflicts with our existing beliefs, so so it, it kind of doesn't pass that initial plausibility check of just being consistent with what we think, then it has to have something else going for it that allows it to pass through and be incorporated into our ideas. So it could be something like it comes from an authority that we have trust in, and then we might take it very seriously. Or it could be an argument that we feel ourselves qualified to check and to see whether the reasoning holds up. But if it's just an assertion, from something that we don't trust and that we, where we don't feel qualified to pass judgment on the soundness of the argument ourselves, then the default thing is just to not uh, not try to incorporate it into our beliefs. Is that right?
0: Yes. No. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, and that's what we see. So if you, if you consider, and we'll, we'll talk about that later as well, I guess. But if you consider a mass persuasion attempts, so if you consider you know advertising, propaganda, you know religious proselytizing, all of these things. You're typically in one of these situations in that when you see, you know, an ad on the subway or something or on TV, I mean, you know who is sending you the message, but you don't have any information about their real competence. You even, you tend to suspect that there's a conflict of interest. They don't really have time to give you any arguments that might change your mind. I mean, not at, not at any length. So in most of these, of these mass mass situations, you're in a situation in which people are mostly going to react on the basis of whether the message that they're hearing drives with what they were already believing or not.
1: Yeah. So. An interesting example of this that you have in the, in the book is there's this idea I think that uh, people can be more easily persuaded of stuff if they're tired or distracted or not paying attention, and that would be a model where uh, like the ideas by default go in, but you have kind of active defenses that you know uh, things can be rejected if you're able to think about them and uh, not allow them into your mind uh, because you're like checking them and and, and rejecting them. But you say that research suggests actually the opposite, that when people are distracted, not paying that much attention, or they're tired, or they don't feel in a position to judge ideas, what happens is they just stop changing their mind at all, which is, of course, a very sensible thing to do, uh, because those are the points at which you would be, uh, like, if you tried to evaluate the arguments, you would be most likely to make a mistake. And so you simply close your ears, more or less, or you simply become unwilling to shift your opinions.
0: Yes. No. Completely. And that's in a way that's this idea that has led both to to the myth of of brainwashing and the myth of subliminal influence. So both of the kind of you know mid-century America, you have the idea that if you if you, you know you go to the to the movie theater and in the middle of the movie they're going to show very very quickly words like you know Coca-Cola or something, then it will make you drink more Coca-Cola. Uh, Because, and and the idea is that precisely because your brain can't process the information on any uh, conscious level, then you're unaware uh, unaware of of the influence attempt and you fall, you're like completely falling prey for it. And so there's no data showing that at all. So the original claims were just completely made up by someone who wanted to sell books. And there's no evidence that any of this uh, works at all. And the other thing which is, which is, which has had much more dramatic consequences is the idea of brainwashing, the idea that if you take, you know, prisoners of war and you submit them to really, really harsh treatment, you stop them, you know, you give them no food, you stop them from sleeping, you know, you're beating them up. So you make them, as you were describing, you make them extremely tired and, you know, you know very, very foggy. And then you get them to read, you know, Mao for, you know, hours and hours and end. Are they going to become communists? Uh, well, we know the answer because, uh, you know, unfortunately, the, the Koreans and the, and, the, and the Chinese have tried during the war and during the Korean War. And it just doesn't work at all. Like, they've managed to kill a lot of POWs, uh, and they managed to get, I think, two of them to go back to China and to claim that they had converted to communism. But in fact, after the fact, it was revealed that these people were just had just converted because they wanted to stop being beaten and starved to death, and that as soon as they could revert back to go back to the U.S., they did so.
1: So let's push on to a a really important distinction here uh, that I think is necessary to understand the, the broader picture. And that's the distinction that you draw between intuitive and reflective beliefs. So you're happy to concede that people are willing to adopt kind of crazy, potentially wrong, reflective beliefs. But you point out that these are often not especially consequential. Uh, and it's, it's intuitive beliefs that do the heavy lifting in our lives, uh, where we, you know, we're much and we're much more careful about what we believe and are resistant to change on intuitive beliefs. So can you explain the distinction between intuitive and, and, and reflective beliefs?
0: Yeah, intuitive beliefs are beliefs that are formed usually through perception. Like, you know, if I, I see there's a desk in front of me, you know, I have an intuitive belief that there's a desk in front of me and I'm, I'm not going to try walking through it. I know I can put my laptop on it. And also beliefs that are formed through some simple forms of testimonies so if my wife tells me she's at home tonight then I'm going to intuitively believe she's at home tonight so I will guide my I will base my behavior on that and I will act as if uh, I had perceived that she was at home tonight for instance and that's the vast majority of our beliefs and and things work really well and and these beliefs are tend to be consequential and to have behavioral you know uh, impact by contrast reflective beliefs, our beliefs that we can we can hold them equally strongly as, as intuitive beliefs. So it's not just a matter of confidence, but they tend to be largely divorced from our behavior. So you can believe something, but either because you don't really know how to act on the basis of that belief or some, for some other reasons, it doesn't really translate into the kind of behavior that one, one would expect if you held the same belief intuitively. So an example that is really striking is, is conspiracy theories. So... If you take someone who who believes who intuitively believes in a conspiracy, so for instance, someone who is works in a company or in a government, and they've seen that their bosses, with their boss was you know shredding documents or was doing something really fishy, and they have good evidence that that some something really bad is going on, their reaction is going to be to shut up. They're going to be afraid for their jobs, you know, in some places for their lives, and it will be really you know they, they have a strong emotional component. And their behavior will be, will be one of really not wanting to say anything, or if they say anything, they won't will want to shout it from the rooftops. You know, they'll contact a journalist, you know, anonymously or something like this. And if you if you can contrast that to the behavior of conspiracy theorists who don't have actual, you know, perceptual or, you know, firsthand evidence of, of, of a conspiracy going on, then these people, they tend not to be afraid. Uh, you know, they can say, oh, you know, I believe uh, the CIA orchestrated 9-11 and they're this all-powerful, evil, you know, institution. And yet, they're not going to kill me if I say this. Uh, And so they're just going to say, at at worst, they're going to say things, but in a way, their emotional and behavioral reactions are really stunted or really different from what you would expect from someone who would have a similar intuitive belief.
1: Yeah you, you give the uh, the contrast between so so in Pakistan the intelligence services are known for engaging in all kinds of conspiracy theories all the time and engaging in like basically committing crimes on the, on the regular in order to to pursue their their agenda and everyone in Pakistan believes that this is the case and they know intuitively that it's the case mm-hmm. and they don't go out and organize a uh, conference talking mm-hmm. about how the security services are... It would
0: not happen. Yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, how, how they call, how they orchestrated a terrorist attack because they think that they would be killed.
0: Because... Yeah, people who have tried would have been would be dead, yeah.
1: <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, and yet, uh, by contrast, in other places where people uh, believe that the security services are similarly... They, they claim to believe that the security services are equally evil and organizing terrorist attacks all the time. They don't seem to have much fear that there'll be any repercussion to saying this. And, and that's the difference between intuitive and reflective claims.
0: Yes, yes. And I, I kind of, ironically, that means that in a way, the more vocal conspiracy conspiracy theories, the more everywhere it is, the less likely it is to be true in a way. <laughs> because <Right. I> <laughs> if it were, if it, I mean, at least when it comes to an actor that still has a lot of power now, uh, I mean, if it comes to, you know, all things in the past, then, you know, fair enough. But if it comes to some an, an actor, like an institution that is supposed to be really par- powerful now, the more you're saying, the more huge the claims are, the less likely it is to be correct. Otherwise, you, know, you would not be out there saying that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Can you give some other examples of uh, crazy or at least not intuitive reflective beliefs that people claim to believe? I think that there's got to be some related to religion, right, where people say that they believe X, but it's not really apparent that their behavior is fully following through on the kind of religious um, dogma that they that they claim they buy into.
0: Yes, I mean, obviously there are many examples from from you know the Christian faith, for instance, in the sense that if you if you believe in the in the theologically correct version of hell. Uh, committing any kind of sin that is likely to land you in hell is, is completely irrational because essentially you're, you're saying, well, you know, if I jerk off now, uh, which is, you know, a small amount of pleasure, then maybe I will spend eternity in hell, which doesn't seem like a good (laughs) trade-off. So, so either people are really, really stupid or they're not fully believing they're not intuitively believing that they're going to go to hell if they, if they do the slightest, you know, uh, little thing. People also irreflectively believe, you know, the theologically correct belief that the Christian God is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent. And yet, you know, when, you, when they think about it more in their everyday lives, they will think about him or they will think about them as an agent. And then they know, well, if I pray now, you know, like two people can really pray at once because, you know, they have to pay attention to the first person first and then to the second person. So that which is, you know, contradicts being omniscient. So there are really uh, lots of, of examples in which... So it's not, I mean, you can believe that God is, is omniscient. You, know, you can be very confident. You're not lying to yourself. You're genuinely believing it and, and you're not lying to anybody. But the fact is that it's really hard to turn that into into behavior. And or to take examples of, of things that are presumably real, like I have a very strong belief that the earth is currently rotating at, you know, I don't know how many miles per hour, you know, on itself and then around the sun and then the sun around the center of the galaxy, et cetera. And I, I don't feel carsick. Hmm. Like, you know, I just know that it is the case, but it doesn't impact me in a, in an kind of emotional manner uh, or, you know, I think that time and space are related to each other, but it's not going to make me not want to take the plane because time would go slower. I mean, it's just, there are things that even if you accept them and even if they are true, uh, they just don't have a lot of behavioral consequences.
1: Yeah. So a listener might think that exempting false to reflective beliefs and saying that professing some silly idea that you don't actually act on, that that, that that doesn't indicate actual underlying gullibility or poor judgment, that there's a little bit of a bait and switch going on here. Uh, what, what, would you, what
0: would you say to that? No, no, that's, that's true. So the, the point is, is um, so these mechanisms that I, I think we have of, of open vigilance that help us um, evaluate information to some extent they, they work more or less intensely based on how important the belief is to us and how how what would be the consequences of actually holding a belief. And for beliefs that don't really matter to us in the slightest, then we're, we tend to be less vigilant and that sort of makes sense. Another thing is that most of these reflexive beliefs, I would think, not only are are they not costly for the person who who holds them. like then again, as we we're saying, if you're a conspiracy theorist, the CIA is not going to kill you. But they also tend to, possibly they, they have advantages. So people who claim, um, who defend conspiracy theorists, maybe they're trying to claim that they know more than others, that they have you know, actually more knowledge than others, that they're more competent. Uh, they can score points within the circle of, of, you know, of fellow conspiracy theorists. So I think that a lot of these reflective beliefs are, uh, even though they're false... And even though they can have really dramatic kind of social consequences, like if a lot of people believe one of these things that is mistaken that can be bad for, for society as a whole, then again, they don't have to be costly for the individuals themselves. And on the contrary, they might actually, actually be beneficial for the individuals who hold them.
1: Uh, I suppose, yeah, the example of someone who doesn't on an intuitive uh, basis believe that all of the claims of the religion that's dominant in their area, um, they might nonetheless uh, benefit from on a reflective basis saying that they agree with the propositions because that allows them to get along with everyone else and to fit into the social group. And so it's very natural to just go along uh, with, with, with those claims, even if you don't actually then take the step of thinking, well, what should this imply about everything that I ought to be doing and truly integrating it into your core intuitions?
0: yes no completely and and people like sociologists of religion who have studied like conversion experiences for instance they've noted that usually you find a religious group that kind of suits your more practical needs like you like you're someone who likes you know being in a group you like going to church you like participating in common activities you like you know doing things maybe to to help other people or you just like being along you know going along with your family and and your friends who have already converted and then you co- you're going to convert for these reasons. And it's only later on that you will sort of adopt the beliefs that, that go along with the, with the behavior. But the behavior uh, are, is, the, is the primary uh, root cause. Yeah. Okay, pushing on. What rules of thumb do people use to decide who to trust? So there are two main dimensions of trust, really. So one has to do with competence. So essentially, how likely is it that what you're telling me is true? Uh, and that depends on how well-informed you are, how much of an expert you are, uh, whether you're someone who is very knowledgeable in a given area. And so for this, we keep track of, of like informat- informational access, for instance. So if you tell me something about, let's say we have a friend in common and I know that you've seen, you've seen her recently. If you tell me something about her, I will tend to believe you because presumably you're better informed because you've seen her more recently. More generally, we are pretty good at figuring out who is an expert in a given area, sometimes on the basis of relatively kind of subtle cues. And so we can, or even like, you know, let's, you have a friend who manages to fix your computer, you, you're going to think, well, you know, they're a good computer person, and maybe you'll turn to them the next time you have a computer problem. So that's the competence dimension. So does that person know the truth? Like, do they have themselves accurate beliefs? And the other dimension, which is maybe what we really call trust in everyday life, is are they going to tell us that? Because, you know, if I, even I can believe that you're the, the most expert person in the world in a given area... If I don't trust you, if I don't believe that you will tell me the accurate, you will share with me the accurate beliefs that you hold, uh, then well, it's no, it's no use to me. And and that second that second dimension of really trust per se, it depends on on broadly on two things. One is uh, your kind of short term incentives. So even if you're you know you're my you're my brother, you're a very good friend. If we play poker together, I'm not going to believe you. Because uh, I know that if you tell me to fold, well, you know, you have no incentive to to be truthful. In the context of poker, we have like purely opposite incentives. So there's this kind of short term, you know, what can you get from me with that specific message? And then there's the long term incentives. Like, are you someone who whose kind of interest are kind of intermeshed with mine, and someone who would benefit from me doing well? And is that something that's going to be true, you know, kind of moving forward? So if you're a family member, if you're a good friend. I know that you don't have any incentive to, or like the very small incentives to, to mislead me because then that will jeopardize our relationship and the cost to you as well as to me would, would be quite high.
1: Yeah. So would you, would you generally say that we have good judgment about who to trust?
0: Yes, on the whole, I mean, we, we make mistakes, but, but where on the whole, I think we're pretty good. And I think most of the mistakes we make are mistakes of the type of we don't trust people enough rather than trusting them too much.
1: Yeah, what, why do you think we are in that direction?
0: because it's the more kind of cautious di- dimension. So without two reasons, one is it's it's often less costly in a way to, uh, or it seems less costly to not trust someone in that you're just, you know, losing out on the potential benefit of the cooperation, but you're not risking something you already have. Like you're risking a potential gain in the future instead of risking something you already have. Like let's say you have a neighbor who wants to borrow your drill. If you don't trust them, well, no one's going to take your drill. Your drill is safe. But what you lose is that if you trust them and uh, it turns out that they're a good neighbor and they give you back your drill, then next time you can borrow something from them. And so you're, you know, you might be gaining something in the long term. And that's what you're losing by not trusting. But that, that cost of not trusting is, is something that tends to be in the longer term. Uh, and that's more, you know, kind of, we might, this might be harder to imagine uh, versus the cost that you have to pay. If you trust someone, they ask you to trust them. It's because you have to pay a cost now to help them or to, you know, to believe in them. And and that cost you have to pay immediately, and that's kind of very salient.
1: Yeah, on the, on this point of trust, one way in which uh, people might uh, be credulous is if we just follow instructions from authorities. And, and one very famous experiment that people frequently cite, demonstrating the tendency, that, that kind of tendency, are these um the, the Milgram experiments, um, where, where people were instructed, these are super famous, probably most people have heard of them, but just to recap, yeah, people were instructed to give intense electric shocks to another another person when they gave the wrong answers to some quiz or something, and supposedly, many of them went along with this, uh, even to the point of causing the supposed participants, who were in fact actors, uh, to uh, to pass out or even pretend to die from from the shocks. So, many people will have heard of this, but I think the, the reality is uh, uh, is, is a little bit different uh, than than what is often portrayed. What what's, uh, what do people misunderstand often about the Milgram experiments?
0: So I mean, on the whole, these are really dramatic experiments that are really really interesting and it, and, and it's still quite informative about human nature that that some people went along. Uh, the figures that are usually uh, put forward of about sixty percent getting along are are probably quite inflated in the sense that after the experiment, uh, Milgram and his confederates. Asked the participants, you know, do you think that there was something fishy going on? Do you think that there was anything that might, you know, have not have been kind of uh, truthful? Sorry, quite a lot of the participants uh, actually said that they thought there was something maybe a bit fishy. And the participants who said that uh, were those who were the most likely to go all the way. So when we're reading that is that if you suspect that it's not real, then you're more likely to comply because you know why not. Hmm. Another thing that's important is that it's not obedience to any authority, like uh, there was a lot of argumentation going on. Like the the, the experimenter who, who was convincing the participants had to do a lot of work. They had to really exchange with them. They well, look, this is for science. It really matters for science that you do this. We take all the responsibility. So it was not just saying, well, you do this. And then participants say, OK, I'm going to do that. No questions asked. So people were really, really resistant to doing anything like this. And also, it also works, it only works if it's uh, a scientist from Yale, essentially. It was like, he was, you know, that it was very prestigious. It's still very, it's very prestigious, but arguably it was even more prestigious. The participants were mostly kind of lower class participants who might have been really kind of awed by, by the prestige of the institution and by the fact that it was science. Like it was not just any random bloke telling you to do this. It was a scientist with a white coat uh, in the basement of Yale telling you to do this. And so there's people had a lot of cues that are very, very reliable, uh, you know, as a rule that, well, these people know what they're doing. Uh, I'm not going to be, you know, kind of sued for anything because they're the ones that are taking responsibility. So obviously it's still interesting that people do that. Like it's not nothing, but um, there's a lot of kind of caveats that should be, that should be kept in mind. Yeah. Yeah. So I think
1: um you point out that's among people who didn't have any doubts about whether or not the experiment was real, uh, only about a quarter of them went uh, all the way to, to the highest voltage, unlike people who uh, who thought that maybe it was a setup uh, from, from the beginning. Uh, and also, when people were commanded to just raise the voltage, then they tended to reject that and refuse. They, they had to be given what at least seemed like um, plausible arguments in favor of, it, of how this was important for science. The interesting thing here is, so so they were, I think, deliberately bringing in less, less educated people to, to a fancy-looking lab at like the most prestigious university they could get in order to amp up this authority effect. And to try to see whether, in that sort of circumstance, people would have uh, trust in the authority figures. And the crazy thing is, they were actually right to trust the authority figures because it was a setup. In fact, there was no damage being done, mm-hmm. and the university would not have approved, <laughs> would not have approved an experiment exactly. in which the uh, participants were being killed <laughs> uh, by by high voltage shocks. So, like in a perverse way, they were actually being rational uh, to to think, well, actually, it's kind of fine to go along with it because otherwise, this wouldn't be happening.
0: Yes. No. You want to believe that if you, if you were maybe in a, in a in a kind of low trust society, or if it had been a, a, another institution in which people had placed less trust, they would have they would have been less likely to go along. Partly because indeed these institutions might have been more likely to do the real thing. So so it sort of makes. I mean, then again, I you know it's still interesting. It's still these are still really really interesting results that reveal, and you can you can you can know that because the people's emotional reactions were very strong. Like the, the participants were really distraught. So something was going on, like these people, some of them really felt they were doing something that was potentially really not grace, uh, and, and some of them still went along. So there's something interesting there, but the conditions that are necessary for that to happen are very, very specific, and on the whole, quite rational. Yeah,
1: what's the other famous experiment from this era of of wild psychology
0: research? I think is this the Zimbardo one? Oh yeah, the Zimbardo prison experiment. But that's that's really bogus. This one, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So I was just going to say, uh, for people who haven't heard the the, the prison experiment, uh, that, that also is still a remarkably in many psychology textbooks is is much closer to just being an outright scam. Uh, you should basically just remove that one from your memory and Google it if you haven't haven't heard what was dodgy about that. Okay, incidentally, in, in the book you discuss the French, so the French, it turns out, have this a, a much stronger belief than many other countries in homeopathy. Uh, and that's one of the very strange ideas that you struggle to explain uh, and, and maybe think of as, it, this could be a legitimate example of people being fooled into believing something that harms them and doesn't really have any intuitive justification either. Uh, and you also point out that um, there was a belief in the 13th century France that the preserved umbilical cords could help you win lawsuits uh, that you found. Mm-hmm. And you actually beg people in the book to help explain either of, how either of those things uh, came to be widespread beliefs. Did you get any good answers uh, to, to to that appeal?
0: No, no. I mean, the, for the for the umbilical cold one, I'm not I'm not really surprised. I guess a few kind of medievalists within within my readers. And for homeopathy, I've never really encountered a, a great explanation either. Um, some of the explanations have to do with the mechanism of homeopathy, but I think few of the users of homeopathy are really aware of how it's supposed to to have worked. I think I mean the the main principle that underlies uh, most kind of misguided medical treatments is that. When people are sick or when one of their closed one is sick people want to do something
1: hmm.
0: like it's really counterintuitive somehow to just well you're just gonna rest and eat soup and that's it even though for most you know common diseases that's the best that's the best thing you can do um and people want to do something for reasons that are probably quite interesting in terms of showing that you're not faking it for instance like no no I'm, you know I'm, look i'm taking a medicine and homeopathy has the advantage of being completely painless. Uh you know, it's not very expensive. It's harmless as well. Yeah, it's completely harmless. It's triggered. You'd have to, you know, have a lot of homeopathy to be diabetic. Uh <laughs> so that's the main risk. So no, it is, it is. I mean, the only risk obviously is if you substitute homeopathy for 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 treatment when in in when you have a sickness that actually requires a treatment, like if you if you have an infection, you want to take antibiotics in, in many cases. Then again, most people who who take alternative medicines in the West, at least, also use conventional medicines uh, when it's required. Uh, so it's more like you know when you have a cold, when your son bumps their head and they have uh, they have a bump on their head. I mean, it's these things uh, which are everyday occurrences and and for which the cost of of being mistaken in taking homeopathy is is very very small.
1: Okay, so yeah, as as mentioned above, you want to say that. People professing silly beliefs that they don't actually act on or intuitively kind of incorporate into their world model—that that doesn't show uh, deep, like, real gullibility. Um, and there are also various other cases of seemingly really daft behavior that uh, you want to defend and explain in the book as motivated by really understandable, pragmatic, selfish concerns. So basically if people are persuaded that their self-interest requires them to say that they believe some stupid thing, then typically they are willing to do it. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they've been persuaded of the belief on a on a deep level. Um, so it's less in these cases an epistemic error and more a matter that they're kind of being bribed, they're being paid to claim that they believe in magic or whatever else. One of the examples of this you've mentioned earlier, uh, or you've alluded to earlier, which is, you know, a non-trivial number of people said that they believe the earth is flat, for instance. Mm-hmm. How could you explain that. And typically the, the the reason is that people are really enjoying the social group, the kind of social dynamic that comes along with these flat earther groups. So uh yeah, is, is there much more to say about that other than that people who are kind of lonely and maybe don't feel like they have many, many allies in life often kind of look for unusual beliefs that can bind a group together that they can all profess. And then that increases the loyalty between them and allows them to hang out and feel like they have something special.
0: Yes, I think that's that's a potential potential explanation. It seems as if people who turn towards conspiracy theories. Are people who maybe don't have the status that they think they should have, uh, in the sense that instead of being people who you know influence others in terms of of having you know strong you know opinions about you know current events and this sort of things, uh, they're you know they're mostly down to just well you have to accept what in the newspaper you have to accept what the author- what the authorities say, and that might not be fully satisfying. People a lot of people want to they want to contribute to to creating their kind of their epistemic environment. And if you can't do that professionally, like if you're a journalist or, or a researcher or, or something like this, then it's tempting to do it in a way that will make up for it, but that because you're not in a nurturing kind of institutional context, uh, is kind of likely to go astray. So people do their own research and they, they create these sometimes, you know, very elaborate and, and quite knowledgeable theories about, you know, vaccination or the fact that the earth is flat or, you know, that whoever is killed, I can see, in a way, I can really understand their motivation. And I, I was talking to a journalist who has studied a lot, QAnon people. And what he was describing was the, the work that these people were doing and, and the feelings that they had when they felt they were uncovering new evidence was not, very, was not very different from what he felt as a journalist when he was figuring out how, you know, a story was, 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 was you know, uh, making sense together. And so he really was understanding, in a way, their motivation. Like, the, unfortunately, the outcome isn't great. But the motivation isn't intrinsically bad. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, so the important thing, maybe, to realize here is that if people are forming these beliefs not because of a sort of error of their ability to incorporate new evidence, but rather because there are selfish motive or like reasons why it's personally beneficial for them to think that they believe something or act as if they believe something, then. It's not an epistemic error, so giving good arguments is not necessarily going to change people's minds. Instead, you have to um, make their well-being high if they believe a different thing that it, that you think is more true. So it's it just quite a different intervention that you might need in order to to change people's minds or to help them.
0: Yes, I mean exactly. Like if if the beliefs haven't been acquired in a, you know because you've been convinced by by careful arguments, uh, then that's also not how you're going to get people out of it. And that's true for for you know, religious cults or these sort of things as well. Usually, people, as we were mentioning earlier, for for religious conversions, people join a new religious group uh, because they ha- they have practical reasons. Like they you know they get along well with the people. They get they get stuff in the in, in the short term that that they that they enjoy. And so, if you want to conv- you know convincing them that the doctrine is, is ridiculous is not going to do so much. What you have to do is to provide them with an environment in which they're going to get. What the other environment is able to provide in terms of status, in terms of you know brother brotherhood, these sort of things. But just to come back to, to conspiracy to conspiracy theorists and maybe kind of flat earthers in particular, when you have a really good idea and you you think you're the first person in the world to have that idea, even if it's not something not massive, it's like like it feels really awesome. Like you feel as if you you figured out something that no one else really has figured out. Like imagine if if you had that belief about the earth being flat. It's like you know it's like all the scientists old everybody in the world is getting this thing completely wrong, and I know this, and I have this truth that is better than what everybody else is thinking. Like it's might be quite a high if you like if you're able to to build, you know, to convince yourself of that. I can see how it would be quite pleasant in a way.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, so so one phenomenon that you regularly point to in the book is that in kind of repeated interactions, when people have their reputation on the line with other people, they tend to caveat what they're saying and to be quite careful about what they assert is true because they know that if they assert X confidently and then X turns out to be false, that they'll be discredited in future in the eyes of other people. And you could similarly think, well, shouldn't people be really careful about going out and saying on on, uh, Facebook that they think the world is flat because that's going to discredit them in everyone's eyes, like going forward if they're wrong and kind of maybe on some intuitive level they realize that they might be wrong. And you actually have an explanation here for why sometimes it can be useful to say things that are outrageous to the broader population. It can be in your selfish interest to say things that alienate people and maybe discredit you in their eyes because it shows your deep commitment to the in-group uh, that you're trying to affiliate with because these are the uh, the few people you that you think that you can potentially trust and make
0: really strong allies. I think you call could call this burning bridges? Burning bridges, yeah. I think it was kind of Pascal Boyer who coined, who coined that term in in that context. Yes, so the idea is that if you're part of a small group of people that n- doesn't necessarily trust outsiders that easily, um, one way of showing that they can trust you is to show that you can't really be part of, of any other group anymore. So if you say something that's really offensive, so that's, if you look at what Ryung recruits and kind of radicalize uh, radicalized movements, they will say things that are really, really awful. And presumably one of the reasons is that they know they are burning their bridges with everybody else with their former you know with their family with their former uh, you know colleagues with with the rest of society and so once you've done that well then you have no other choice but to uh but to be faithful to the group that shares these beliefs even if the beliefs don't really matter that much really at the end it's just a way of of, of displaying your allegiance to a group so i mean it's very kind of it's hypothetical but it's it would kind of Make sense of why uh, people would express views that so many people are going to find aberrant or, or plain silly.
1: Okay, another maybe uh, darker example of this general phenomenon that you mentioned in the book is an official in the North Korean government uh, who announced that they believed Kim Jong-un could teleport magically from place to place. Uh, Now, someone might be cynical about a North Korean official saying this, um, but maybe it's also conceivable that having lived your entire life inside the North Korean regime, maybe you have been brainwashed into believing that Kim Jong-un has crazy magical powers. Uh, But yeah, what, what, what do you think is the explanation for what's going on there?
0: So for this, I rely on a, on a nice paper by Javier Marquez, who is a, a political scientist who has coined the term, or maybe someone else inherited it, but the term of, of flattery inflation, which is something that uh, he documents in a number of, of cases in which you have a dictator, and the people around the dictator, uh, they want to signal that they, they are, would be faithful to the dictator, that they they you know they have his back, so they can then benefit from, from the dictator's largesse. Uh, but it's hard because the dictator knows that Everybody has that incentive, and everybody, you know, is going to try to ingratiate themselves with him. And so, one possible solution for that is to is to flatter the dictator in a way that that is going to make you look ridiculous, even vis-à-vis the other kind of sycophants that are that are surrendering the the dictator. And so, you say things that are increasingly, you know, over the top. Uh, so that you can say, look, you know, I'm the most sycophantic of all the sycophants. Uh, I'm the one you can trust because I'm saying things that, you know, anybody, everybody else in, the, in society is going to think I'm a loon for saying it. So then again, it's it's it's, it's kind of hypothetical, but, but it fits with the behavior. And then again, these are, to go back to the intuitive reflective belief distinction, all of this is very much reflective. Like if people, you know, I've seen Kim Jong-un, you know, control the weather or teleport, I'm pretty sure they would have been quite shocked. Yeah,
1: or <laughs> also uh, if Kim Jong Un was uh, going to a conference in Beijing and said he didn't need a didn't need a plane, didn't need transportation because
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, 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 with a very fancy train they have, yeah. like
1: why you why are you organizing transport for me? There's no there's no yeah, need. Uh, 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 <laughs> okay. Beam me up, Scotty. Um, Okay, another thread of the book is um, is the following. So. In some of the most striking cases where many people reach false conclusions, uh, you want to say that the issue isn't our processing of incoming evidence or our being easily persuaded by other people. Rather, it's a matter of human beings, in some cases, having natural preconceptions that they will tend to come to like just of their own devices almost almost every time unless there's super compelling evidence provided to the contrary. Um, and the three cases you discuss uh, the most in the book are excessive vaccine hesitancy, belief in creationism, and and bloodletting. Yeah, maybe the most striking one uh, with with new facts that I was totally not familiar with is the discussion of, of bloodletting. So the story I was familiar with here was that the, the humoral theory of medicine was popular among a particular set of ancient Roman and Greek philosophers and physicians. Uh, and the the physician philosopher Galen famously wrote about the humours and bloodletting and medicine in general. And, and it's kind of that argument from authority that made bloodletting a generally accepted practice for some 1900 years. And, and of course, the, the bloodletting went on to kill an, enorm, an inordinate number of people because as as we now know, when people are sick... Draining you of your blood is kind of the last thing you want to do. <laughs> you, it's not a great idea. You need all of the blood that you have. Okay, but uh, you argue in the book that that's not really why bloodletting blood was common practice in in the Western world for for all that time. Kid, can, can you explain? Yeah.
0: yeah so just uh, I can't help but mention a couple of anecdotes. When George Washington was was uh, fell ill with it with a throat infection in the in the in the winter of 1799, uh, obviously he was you know he was uh, like a semi god in the US at the time, and so the best doctors were brought to his bedside, and they decided to to, Over the course of several days, not in one but to bleed him of two and a half liters of blood, which is about half of the amount of blood that a normal adult has, and after that he died somehow. So I mean, was, people are still discussing whether it was the throat infection or the or the bleeding, or probably a mix of both. But uh, but that didn't help. And another example from the same period is um, Benjamin Rush, one of the one of the founders, like uh, the most uh, uh, rec- the best recognized physician in in the revolutionary uh, U.S him and his, you know, not the only one, but everybody else at the time when there was like an epidemic, for instance, like there was an epidemic of yellow fever in Philly, in Philadelphia. And they would bring all the sick people together or put them in a big tent. And then they would bleed them all like just a little bit. Like you don't bleed them a lot, but you just bleed them a little, a little bit. The, the issue there is that they bleed them all with the same scalpel without really being too thorough about washing it because they didn't have the germ theory of disease. So I mean, to be fair, in most cases, people get bled. Like you know, you 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 cut a little bit of the arm, um, you, you let it's just a little bit of blood that's gonna come out, and you do that some, often as a prophylactic, or when you have a cold or something. And you know, it's not it's not great, but it's it's not a big deal in the vast majority of cases. And in, in some cases, it's gone really wrong, but it, it, usually it's, it's not that bad. It's just a, it's never useful, except if you have like, if you have too much iron in, in your blood, but it's very rare. So as you were saying, the main story we could tell is that these very influential physicians from from Greece and Rome had influenced a whole, you know, centuries and millennia of of Western physicians. But as it turns out, maybe about a third uh, of cultures in the world practice bloodletting. And they've done that even though they have never heard of Galen, they've never heard of the Hippocratic writers, they've never heard of of, of any of these uh, influential physicians and so that shows that um, it is a practice of bloodletting for a number of reasons that are not well understood, but, but the practice of bloodletting itself is intuitive. And most cultures will will spontaneously stumble upon something like bloodletting. So it's going to be bloodletting, or it's going to be using emetics to make people throw up. It's going to be laxatives. It's going to be even sudation. Like they are going to make something come out of you one way or the other when you're sick. And that's just an intuitive practice that is bad. Like it's just don't do that. But for a bunch of reasons, it seems to have happened uh, nearly everywhere. And so that shows that, if anything, the theories that these physicians created about these very complex, elaborate el- el- elaborate theories such as the, the humoral theory of disease, they were created after the fact, to justify a practice that was pre-existing and a practice whose success uh, was due to its kind of intuitive nature, the fact that intuitively people find that compelling. Uh, and not to the theories. The theories are really secondary. There's something that go along with the with the practice because people like to do things that they can justify, but they don't really cause the practice,
1: yeah, so you point out that's so in, in a very large number of kind of hunter-gatherer tribes it was common to engage in some form of bloodletting and obviously these people had not heard of the of, of the greek classics exactly uh and like if if this was all the result of some error on the part of a handful of philosophers then that would be pretty surprising that this is uh, coming up so so frequently and also you point out in the hunter-gatherer tribes they don't tend to have some elaborate theory for why bloodletting is good the the, the not, nothing about uh you know uh, the like biliousness or any of these other humors rather if people are asked they're, they're Say well, there's something bad in you that's making you sick. So we got to get the bad thing out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, something very intuitive like that. And it's only actually when you have a more cosmopolitan, uh, like more educated uh, environment, like ancient Rome, that you need to come up with some elaborate theory to justify how it is that bloodletting is a good idea. Uh, because it, you know, in that sort of more competitive cultural environment, simple intuition might not be regarded as dispositive. It's not not sufficient. Uh, and so there, you would need to write a book, you need to write a treatise to explain why you need to engage in bloodletting.
0: Yes. Exactly. And there's going to be more competition as well uh, among physicians, you know, and so you don't, you don't have just like the, the village healer, you have several physicians and the, ph- the physicians you're going to, to see might be the one as well, who is the best able to, to explain, even if the explanations are mostly bogus, who is not just going to tell you, look, you know, you need to be bled, but also you need to be bled because such and such. And so given that you yourself, you're going kind of agree with the therapy in the first place you know, it's better, it looks better if you can understand what's going on or if you feel you understand what's going on. Yeah.
1: Okay, so yeah, absolutely. You know, lots of people are reluctant to get vaccinations. And I guess pe- people are, who are reluctant to get vaccinations have been pretty vilified in recent years. One explanation for this belief is generally bad judgment. Another might be that people are gullible and that they or like they, uh, they they don't know who to trust. And so they're trusting these quack doctors. Uh, yeah, what, what's, what's your explanation for why so many people are, are scared to get uh, vaccinated?
0: So... In a way, we can tell that it's not surrogability because we find the same pattern everywhere, and we have found it since the beginning of of mandatory vaccination or, or inoculation in, in in Britain about two centuries ago. So, in every society, there are, there will be a few, like a few percentage of you know a few percent of people who will quite staunchly oppose vaccination. You know, really kind of anti-vax people. And you'll have, you know, 10, 20, 15% uh, or more who are more kind of vaccine hesitant. And that kind of, actually the worst country probably is actually France, which I'm a bit ashamed about. So you have this and and you find that just about everywhere in the world. Then again, you find that in England as soon as vaccination was introduced. So it just seems to be a fact of human nature that some people will, will find vaccination to be a, a bad thing. And I think it resonates with a lot of people, even people who are mostly pro-vax. You sort of you can at least sort of understand the intuition that injecting something that is related to a disease into uh, into a baby that is perfectly healthy doesn't seem like the most straightforward thing to do. Like imagine if you didn't know anything about vaccination and you encounter a tribe that you know takes a bit of blood from a, from a sick cow and puts it in a in a perfectly healthy baby, you're going to think that they're nuts. Uh, I'm, I'm taking the example of the cow because that's how inoculation started with the kind of smallpox in the in the UK. Mm. So obviously, given everything we know about vaccination, you know, you should do it for all the vaccines that are recommended by, by the health system. But I can see how the, you know, it's not the most ther- the most intuitive therapy. It's not like if you have a broken arm and so says, and so you know, probably we should put the bone, you know, right. Uh, okay, <laughs> sure. Yeah, let's do it. I say, oh, yeah, you should, your kid is perfectly fine. We should take this thing from that sick person and transform it and then put it in your kid. It's, it's not, it doesn't sound great. So there's an intuition, I think, that many people share that vaccination uh, isn't the best therapy. And we know that this is the prime driver and not not the stories about vaccination causing autism, for instance, because as much as in every culture, there are people who are going to, to doubt vaccination, the reasons that they offered for, for, to justify that doubt are going to vary tremendously from one culture to the next. So in, in the West, it has been a lot recently about uh, you know, vaccines like the MMR vaccine in particular causing autism. It used to be that the smallpox inoculation would turn you into a cow. Uh, there are many cultures in which, you know, it's going to make you sterile, it's going to make you AIDS, it's going to make you all sorts of bad things to you. So the, the justifications vary a lot because these are the ones that you get from your environment. But the underlying motivation to dislike vaccine is pretty much universal. Uh, not not universal in the sense that everybody sh- shares it, but in every, every population, you'll have people who are very keen on, on being anti-vax.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it does make a lot of sense. I think that, you know, I, I, guess, I guess at most points in history, if doctors had said, well, what we should do is take the thing that makes someone else sick and put it on you, then that actually would, you would have been pretty justified in saying, I don't know, I think I'm just going to get the homeopathy. <laughs> take take just the water because that would be a much safer option. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it is quite counterintuitive that you should take someone who's healthy and then give them a transformed disease, uh, basically. So it's just, I guess, an unfortunate fact of reality that that actually is the best, <laughs> that actually is the best treatment. That is really- Really bad luck. Yeah, really bad luck for us. Yeah, it makes me it makes me more sympathetic to, to anti vaxxers. And I guess it suggests that for every generation the burden of proof is on the vaccinations. Every generation has to be persuaded anew that despite uh despite what you might think, this is safe. And I guess when the diseases that people are getting vaccinated against are common, then it, it's more easy to demonstrate to people that it's a good idea because you can see that like the past generation all had smallpox and we don't and we're not dying. So that's compelling evidence. But when nobody you know has ever had any of these diseases, then it's a lot harder to provide really compelling um, information, especially if you're in general skeptical of authorities or of doctors. Uh, then how are you going to come to credibly believe that this is safe? It's, it's kind of a, a, a quite deep uh, epistemic challenge for you.
0: Yes, and it's also a moral challenge because for a lot of people, uh, vaccination is is going to protect you, but against something that is unlikely to be really, really severe. But uh, if you vaccinate, obviously, then you stop. If, if enough people vaccinate, then you stop the spread of the disease in the first place, and then the disease can't affect those people who are more vulnerable and who can be really sick. So it's not just a matter of like it can be rational in a very kind of narrow, uh, egoistic, egoistic manner to not vaccinate in some cases. But it's it's then it becomes often in many cases a morally very very dubious choice. Yeah
1: okay yeah a third example that I think oh, we'll, we'll just skip over here because it has a kind of similar structure is um, creationism so in general people have this intuition that things that exist in the environment um, were created for a purpose which is a pretty sound intuition because if I look around the room here I mean I've got like the table it looks like a thing that was made for sit at it's a light it looks like it's a thing that was made to produce light uh, and so uh, it's very natural to engage in this kind of teleological reasoning that well what were humans made for what were trees made for um, and so this this gives uh, creationism a very easy time it's very intuitive to the human mind to imagine. Imagine that the natural world was made for a purpose, rather than to believe that it was made completely by random chance variations. Um, evolution is not a simple thing to understand necessarily, uh, compared to the idea that things are made for a, for a good purpose.
0: Yes, and and even when it, even when it comes to to things that were created by natural selection, not, not like artifacts, it still helps to have this teleological stance in the sense that if you want to understand an eye, you know it makes sense that well I have to understand it as something that was designed, you know inverted commas to to see. If you if you don't see it as as such an artifact in a way, you're never going to make sense of how it is how it works. So even if you have to remind yourself that well you know obviously it was not created by someone, it still has features of something nearly that would have been created by someone.
1: Okay, yeah, pushing on. Uh- a few interviews ago, I spoke with the economist Brian Kaplan. And have you, have you heard of him? Yeah, obviously, yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, okay. And w- one of he, his key ideas, which he lays out in the book, uh, The Myth of the Rational Voter, is that while voters often have, you know, very wise and prudent beliefs when it comes to practical decisions that they have to make in their own personal lives, like, I don't know, what, what Carter, by say, when it comes to big picture policy issues, they often hold completely daft or demonstrably false false beliefs. And the main reason for this, as he explains it, is is, is, is pretty simple, that voters have dumb beliefs about policy issues, the practical effect on them is virtually nothing because the chance that their vote is going to change the, an, an election is roughly zero and they know that perfectly well. So they understandably choose what Ryan calls rational ignorance, basically just expressing views that feel good or that make them look good or um, you know, just confidently believing kind of random things because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter one, one jot what they think. So yeah, in as much as you think voters in democracies do have some foolish or harmful beliefs, do, do you agree that that's an important
0: driving driving reason? Broadly, yes, I guess, but but several kind of caveats. Uh, one is that people are not that bad at having beliefs about, uh, like the economy as a whole, for instance. So, for instance, at the moment uh, in the U.S., there's a lot of talk about a disconnect between uh, the underlying uh, economic conditions in terms of inflation and unemployment rate, for instance, uh, versus what people are saying that they feel that things aren't going well. Like they say, "Well, I'm you know my personal finances are going well, and I have a good job, and I'm getting paid more." But on the whole, I think the country is doing poorly, and and that seems to be one of the disconnects that kind of that Brian Kaplan is talking about. However, uh, that's only exceptional because until recently, public sentiment was actually tracking economic conditions extraordinarily closely. It's still the case, actually, in most other in most countries in which uh, this data is generated. And in the U.S., it's plausible that this is a temporary lapse, and that once kind of people have figured out that the salaries have increased by just about as much as inflation by now. Uh, things will converge again. So people aren't quite as bad as they often portrayed at, you know, having an impression of, of how the system as as a whole is doing. And it's also important to keep in mind that when people make voting decisions, for instance, they will use, they will decide to vote for the person who best aligns with what they believe on things that they care about. So maybe someone who is really oriented on issues they really care about, you know, abortion, for instance, so for something that's really prominent to them. Maybe they won't know what are the economic issues of the candidate, the economic positions of the candidates, but they will know what are their, you know, what is their stance on abortion and that is going to help that person decide. So obviously people can be expert in every domain, uh, but that's fine. So I, I agree that people are going to get a lot of things wrong because it doesn't really matter to them that much, but it doesn't have to be uh, really bad for democracies. Mm. And another another kind of rejoinder, I guess, to, I not really to Kaplan, who would not advocate advocate for for, for dictatorship, but... When things get really bad in society is when dictators get things wrong. Like the most dramatic thing that ever happened maybe in, in history is, you know, Mao's great famine when, when he killed, or his policies killed, you know, dozens of millions of Chinese people. And that was the case because he had really misguided beliefs and he had a lot of power to implement them. So when things, it's that's, that's not when random citizen gets something wrong, it's like the consequences of that are really, really small because there are so many, uh, you know, uh, checks and balances Whereas in a dictatorship, when the dictator uh, gets something wrong, then things can go really, really bad. Yeah. And then again, there. So then there, the, the logic is in a way the same because the dictator is themselves largely insulated from the consequences. They're not the ones that are starving. Yeah. So the logic is similar, but the consequences are much worse.
1: Right. Yes. Hard uh, to disagree with that. I think Kepler Ka- might say, for example... Uh an example of people getting getting their kind of engineering uh, wrong or their, their ideas about public policy wrong in a way that's uh, like quite harmful to society is many people are very scared about nuclear energy and think that nuclear power is not uh, not a good way of generating electricity. It's not safe or whatever, even though uh, like almost all experts in the area, and indeed I, think that nuclear power would have been something a great thing to invest in in the 70s and 80s and, and double down on and try to make it safer and better and cheaper. And I think that that is kind of an example where a person who is wary of nuclear power and doesn't really want to see any more nuclear power plants built, they don't really suffer any like any negative consequence themselves because of their own false beliefs. Maybe they suffer because the whole of society has this incorrect idea, but there's not a big reward that they would themselves get by looking into, like taking time away from taking care of their children, to look into the engineering behind nuclear power It mm-hmm. uh, doesn't make a whole ton of sense. So it's it's easy to explain from a self-interested uh, or just like the normal inertia of life point of view, how people could end up uh, thinking something in like nuclear power isn't safe uh, even if it's not true
0: no I agree I mean that's one of these examples in which misperceptions that are not well understood like I've, I've worked a bit on this we don't really well underst- understand very well why people seem to have such kind of negative preconceptions about, about nuclear power just nearly everywhere in the world but Whatever the cause, these misperceptions have had dramatic policy consequences, and it is indeed one of the domains in which you can make a plausible case that it is public opinion, to some extent, that led countries like Germany or Belgium or other countries to to dismantle their, their nuclear fleet. And you know, studies have shown that thousands of people have died because of this, because of the you know coal plants that had to be used instead of nuclear power. So, so yeah, no, it is a case in which it's not irrational for people to get this to get, to get this wrong, but you could make the case that it is bordering on being a bit immoral to the extent that they are inflicting costs on others so the only thing i would say is that in most of these cases as far as i can tell but i, I don't know enough it's more like a public sentiment like there was not like there was a poll in which people had to make a conscious decision i'm gonna decide, i'm gonna vote on this issue in which case when, when it's the case then you really you should have some responsibility for informing yourself before before actually voting so that at least it's the most informed people who vote if it's just like well the public opinion doesn't like this Asking people to really be be, as you are saying, to be really can, to be held liable for their for their opinions, it's a very high bar. Like you know, you can't do everything. You can't become an expert in everything. So, if it's just that there was a bad a bad general feeling, it's hard to help to hold people really morally responsible for this.
1: Yeah, I think that this might be another case where there's an intuitive human reaction to the idea of this kind of radiation that. For some reason, that really strikes fear into the heart of human beings, um, and so uh, like fear of nuclear stuff has an easy has an easy road <laughs> in order to persuade people. The thing that's funny actually about that is less that, and more that people don't have a similarly fearful reaction to particulate pollution coming from coal. That they're a bit wary of that, but not nearly as wary as they should be. Whereas the nuclear stuff, uh, they get so scared of it, even though the evidence is so poor.
0: No, no, no. I completely agree. The the um I mean, we, we have some evidence, but it's not completely clear that, that one of the things that's going on is that nuclear power is stepping into people's um, disgust mechanisms. So we have this, this, this psychology that evolved to help us avoid uh, things that are going to make us sick. And so we have a nutrition that we shouldn't touch or, you know, even less eat, you know, feces and urine and, and anything that comes out of, of people's bodies or rotten flesh, anything that smells really horrendous. And, and these mechanisms, the way they work is they tell us, well, look, these things contain small things that you can't really perceive, but that are going to make people sick. And, and the amount of, of the thing doesn't matter, like, and which is mostly true. I mean, you can get sick with a very small amount of, of viruses or, or bacteria, obviously. And then that's, that's, that's contagious. That can be transmittable from one person to the next. And I think it is that template that people apply to nuclear energy, because they think, well, you know, okay, radiation is this invisible thing, a bit like you know, germs and viruses are invisible to the naked eye. It's this this invisible thing that makes people sick, even if they're exposed to a very, very small amount of it. And then the people who have gotten sick, they can make others sick. And you see that you see that, for instance, when the way that people who have been hurt uh, by radiation, mostly after after the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. Like it was sometimes hard to find people willing to treat them because they are perceived as as being contagious themselves, which was which was not the case by and large. Some of their clothes might have had some radiation, but they themselves were not anymore. So we have this this false image of nuclear energy that is then again overwhelmingly misguided. And I think that gives us this bad feeling about it. Yeah. And it's true, and it's true, it's funny, but I, I think like particulate matters. I think it would work in the same way as people have the intuition in a way that smoking is going to make you sick. Like when people, when data started coming out that smoking is causing lung cancer, I think it intuitively is like, oh yeah, I can see that happening. And if there was more of a, of a kind of media discussion of, of the effect of particulate matter, I think it would, even if you can't really see like in the same way as you can't really see the particles in, in, in smoke, people, I think, would, would get it. Uh, but they wouldn't get like, the contagion. It's still less scary because like, if you're exposed a lot to it, then you're more likely to get it. You don't have this very kind of insidious feeling you have with things that are contagious. Yeah, I, I would have thought
1: that one of the differences between particulate pollution and radiation is that the former has a very simple physical mechanism that I think I intuitively understand, which is that you burn coal, it produces smog, or you burn wood and it produces mm-hmm. smog, and then I breathe it in, and that sounds bad, but also comprehensible. Whereas with nuclear power, you're like, where is the radiation? I can't <laughs> see it. How much is it? How much is bad? like are there different types yeah. i like i'm very educated and i still find it very confusing uh so you can imagine someone who just doesn't understand like uh what radiate like what well, i mean what is radiation it's, it's super weird uh, and i think that 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 confusion means that you just have to take um the belief that it's safe on trust because you don't understand that you, you have done graduate physics uh, and then if you don't trust people if you don't trust engineers to that degree then well you're just screwed you're kind of always going to be suspicious of it
0: no, no, I agree, but I mean, still another small caveat is that before, at least before before Hiroshima and Nagasaki, for a long time in the early 20th century, before essentially the the harms of of, uh, of radiation were better understood, people would would put radiation in like not radiation, but they would put like radio, radioactive elements in in, in makeup or in, or in like everywhere because it was glowing clocks and stuff, which obviously is a bad idea. So it's not like you still need. Something to associate uh, the idea of nuclear power with something bad. It's not completely, you know, intuitive. It's like when people figure that actually radiation is bad, then it's like the way in which it is bad makes it feel much worse than other types of potential harmful substances.
1: Okay, pushing on in, in a second. I want to throw some of the trickiest cases I can think of at you, uh, like possible exa- counter examples to sort of the the set of explanations that that you present in the book. But but just before that. What's an important way in which you think our mechanisms of open vigilance and plausibility checking and credibility detection kind of do systematically fail? What's an important kind of consistent weakness in human judgment and our ability
0: to figure things out? One potential example is that uh, in some cases, we fail to notice that we get the same information from different people, but in fact, all of these people had gotten their information from the same source and so it feels as if we have a lot of people telling us the same thing but they all have vetted it in a way they all have independent value when in fact it all comes from it all comes from the same person so in some sense that's what you get with the intergener- intergenerational transmission so you have one generation that somehow they form a given belief and and then they pass it on to the to the next generation and when you grow up in a society it feels as if you know your parents and your siblings and your uncles and your aunts and your you know, everybody in society uh, if you live like say in a small-scale, relatively kind of somewhat more homogeneous society, everybody has similar beliefs in the ancestors, in what traditions have to be upheld, in, in, in taboos and, and this sort of things. And it, it has to feel as if everyone in the group has kind of independently vetted this. So they have maybe they have some first-hand evidence, maybe they have good reasons to believe this. And so you have this incredibly strong evidence. We have all of these people who are otherwise reliable and trustworthy. And they all appear to have come to the same conclusion independently of each other. And then it would be really foolish not to believe them. You know, you know obviously they have to be right. Uh, and so you fail to take into account the fact that they themselves have all been influenced for the same process by the, by the previous generation, which means that their opinions are actually not really that independent of each other.
1: Yeah, I think I've seen this play out in my social circle. Sometimes it's a it's a thing that's hard to avoid because uh, well, you, you can basically just have any situation where you notice that a lot of people all seem to agree with this research conclusion. Uh, something that's like not that's not that that obvious, but maybe maybe everyone has like independently figured out that that this thing is true, and then you might. Dig into it and realize that well, they've all just had conversations with this one person who persuaded them of this, and maybe wrote a paper about it. And like that's all well and good. It's it's, it's good to know that one person looked into it and believes this uh, believes X. But uh, you shouldn't then count it as like ten independent people all having figured it out just because they all agree. Uh, you need to know the providence of the original assertion in order to tell how overwhelming the evidence is just from uh, from it being conventional wisdom.
0: Yes, so it's not it's not as if. You're not always warranted in discounting the fact that 10 people have agreed to it because, you know, if your friends aren't completely foolish, if they trust that one person that tells you, well, maybe they're right to trust that person and to believe what they're saying. So it's not completely, I mean, as, assuming they're not just blindly following what that person is saying, which I don't think happens very often, uh, they're not, you know, you, it's still some kind of signal that they that all of them are agreeing that that person you know, is right. But it's still good to know that at the end of the day, it's better to just go back to that person and, and revisit you know yourself what what, are, what what arguments they are putting forward.
1: Yeah, one of the terms for this is information cascade, uh, where you can get uh, like
0: beliefs becoming more and
1: more. You look like you recognize that term.
0: Yes, yeah, no, it is no, no, no. It is it is it is it is somewhat similar. Like in, a, in an information cascade, the way it's it's been usually designed is is yes, you you look people are influenced by the people be, you know before them, and it looks as if it looks to you as if. Each new person has made up their mind independently of others, when in fact they themselves had been influenced by the people before them. And so it looks as if you have like a lot of confirmatory evidence When in fact it just so happens that at the beginning of the chain you had a few people who thought so and then everybody sort of was overwhelmingly influenced by them. And, and that gets, that's supposed to get increasingly worse because if you have, you know, five and then 10 and then 50 people who will agree, then obviously the weight of the evidence that they're right is increasingly large for the record, that doesn't happen in when you try to do the experiments. You know, economists, they have these nice models of how that should happen in a way if people are irrational uh, to some extent. Uh, but in fact, in every group, you have enough people who are picketed and just can say, well, no, I'm going to ignore it. Everybody else is saying, I'm just going to go my own way. And these people, uh, they break, they completely break these cascades. Mm. Uh, so they can be annoying, but at least they, they they play that kind of useful role sometimes. Yeah,
1: that's 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 good to know. That, that'll be my excuse next time. <laughs> Okay,
0: so, so back to the trickiest
1: cases. Yeah, I, I asked around for counter examples, um, and here are the ones I found hardest to explain on, 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 on my own using the tools you gave me in Not Born Yesterday. So, so the, the things I was looking for are the following. So beliefs that a meaningful number of people are persuaded by. So it's not just one weird person. Mm-hmm. Uh, beliefs where it, the person takes actions um, as if they really intuitively believe that those things are true and where those actions are costly to the person themselves, like making their lives worse. And also, uh, it would be possible or practical for someone to figure out that the beliefs are probably false if they did some sensible research, you know, the sort of thing that might take me a couple of hours. Does, does that sound like a good set of criteria? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Okay. So the biggest cluster of things that I think might qualify are, are really harmful financial decisions. And there, there are a couple of these that, that we could go through. But uh, two of the top ones for me are multi-level marketing scams and, and day trading. So just to briefly explain what those are. First off, so day trading is the phenomenon of amateurs or semi-professionals trading shares at home kind of buying and selling, you know, a Google stock or whatever, uh, maybe holding it for just a couple of hours or maybe days and then uh, buying it and then selling it again. And this is basically just an incredibly dumb investment strategy. Uh, I think over the medium run, uh, I've seen studies suggesting that 90% or more of people lose money using that investment strategy if it's compared to just buying an index fund uh, of the whole stock market and not selling anything until you retire. That's it, that, that dominates almost always. But this activity is more popular than ever, or at least it was really popular during during the pandemic where people were stuck at home. Uh, and it, it's not uncommon for people. People to lose tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in their retirement savings just due to their overconfidence or whatever it is that's driving them to do this crazy thing okay and then you've got multi-level marketing scams um which are a little bit more complicated to explain but americans might be more familiar with them because i think they're they're most popular there these are companies like amway or avon or herbalife or vorwark or mary kay and millions of people have been tricked by these things and they're, they're companies that hook you on the idea that you'll make money by buying products from them and then selling them onto your friends or people you know you know be it be it Tupperware or nutritional supplements or, 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 or whatever. And they say you'll make money because you'll recruit your friends to also become salespeople. And then you'll get a cut of all of the sales that they make. <laughs> but to, to, to cut a long story short, the result of geometric growth uh, in these schemes is people attract more and more salespeople. And just limited market size that there exists for nutritional supplements and Tupperware is that kind of only the first few percent of people who join these uh, these programs can hope to turn a profit and everyone else kind of has to lose out. But yeah. Uh, the mystery is that for decades, large numbers of people have continued to be tricked into losing large amounts of money and time participating in these dodgy businesses uh, and that with a bit of Googling, uh, they could have found out that these are just a, just a total trap. So I, I appreciate you're not an expert in these particular case studies mm-hmm. uh, and I'm throwing the most difficult one I can at you. But yeah, do you have any thoughts on what's going on with people's kind of reasonably often like poor and quite large you know, like uh, financial decisions in, in cases like these.
0: Yes. No, I mean, uh, so in the first case, the case of, of day trading, my intuition would be that obviously it's it's related to to the same reasons that drive people towards gambling. I mean, essentially people are gambling in in, in there's this, it's a legal manner with the stakes are much higher, which is funny when you think about it. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but, so, so I don't exactly know why people are attracted to gambling. But in, in relation with the point of, of kind of, not born yesterday, that, that people are quite good at at discriminating information, like it's not something, I think in most cases, it's not something that they have been persuaded by other people to do, it's something that they intuitively sort of want to do. It's like, you know, they don't need someone to tell them, look, you know, you should you, you should be able to, you should do this. On the contrary, actually, maybe if people were to tell them that they would be more skeptical, it's something like intuitively you feel, well, you you see, you know, you, you hear stories of stocks going up and people making a lot of money It's like well, you're going to, why not me? And these stories are true, obviously. They're you kind know, of selectively reported because people lose a lot of money as well. But like if you talk about not the statistics, but but if you talk about stories, there should be an asymmetry in that you can only lose so much money, but the the, the ceiling there's no ceiling to how much money you can you can win. Hmm. So it's possible that a story of someone who loses ten thousand dollars it's really not interesting at all, but a story of someone who makes millions because they've invested uh, wisely with inverted commas because they, they got lucky really. Is, is more likely to make the headlines and, and people to talk about it. So there might be a bias there in, in, in what what kind of stories people uh, hear. But then mostly people want to, many people, and not everybody, but a lot of people are attracted to gambling. Uh, they just, you know, they feel as if they can make a lot and they don't fully realize that the you know, the losses they can, uh, that can ensue. So I don't think a lot of persuasion is going on there. Hmm. Uh, I think it's something that a lot of people are just intuitively drawn towards. Uh, so I don't think, I don't know exactly why that's the case. Uh, But I don't think it's a problem with people being gullible in particular. Okay.
1: Yeah, so let's stick with day trading for a minute. And I suppose similar stuff is this kind of number go go up is the term that people use for people investing in crypto and just thinking that cryptocurrency is always going to go up. And again, yeah, there is this mystery of why do people gamble? So, well, I mean, people go and play on these poker machines where they just kind of get into this zombie-like state, putting money into these machines and losing it. It does seem like a case to me where engineers have come up with they've, they've found some bug in the human brain and they are exploiting it hard they've found <laughs> there's some people who are vulnerable to this to this hack basically uh and they're not realizing how much money they're losing or it's pleasing them in in some way uh and so they're able to just extract enormous amounts of money um that does seem like a case where if it's not persuasion It's manipulation of a sort.
0: Yes. No, no, I agree. I mean, it's not, it's it's your manipulating mechanisms. They're not the ones I'm really talking about in that book in terms of mechanisms that allow you to evaluate communication, because no one has to talk to you, talk you into going to the casino. It's just, you know, you hear about it. And maybe even from someone who says, oh, you shouldn't go there because blah, 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 but, you know, somehow uh, you end up there. So I don't know what is the proportion of, of people who are really kind of problematic uh, gambling behavior out of out of all the people who gamble, because obviously people who gamble get something out of it. They enjoy it. So, you know, in the same way as, you know, most people who drink are not problematic drinkers or like, it's not just gambling per se is not irrational to the extent that you don't lose everything and that you enjoy gambling. Um, it's like any other activity that you can pay to engage in, you know, and then like every behavior, there's gonna be a bell curve of how how attractive, like how rewarding any activity is. And for most people, gambling is moderately attractive and and or moderately rewarding and people engage in it moderately and things are kind of fine. You have people who really don't like this and then you have people who are who have an issue. But this is just going to be the normal distribution for any trade, like people who are overeating, overdrinking, taking drugs, I mean everything that you can think of that is rewarding, it's impossible to be perfectly calibrated. Especially, as you mentioned earlier, that we live in such a crazy environment in which people are sort of out to get you to some extent. And so you're going to have people at the end of the bell curve who, who, who are going to have problems. But that doesn't mean that the underlying mechanism uh, is itself problematic.
1: Yeah. In terms of people having intuitive beliefs that are wrong, it you know, you know economists and finance experts will, will tell you if you ask that movements of prices on the stock market are basically completely random. Uh, they follow they follow a trend but then the movements around that trend are completely random and and like what happened yesterday doesn't affect what will happen tomorrow. Uh, I think that the term for this is it's a martingale uh, just to say that it's just like at every moment it's reset and the past doesn't matter and just it's moving up and down in these random patterns. I think that is not intuitive to people. When I try persuading people of this, just people who I know in my life, they're like, really? Is that right? And I guess they're right that if you're a super professional or you're an algorithm writer, maybe you could find some uh, some predictability in there. And that's why some people do manage to make money on it. Uh, usually people who are really at the cutting edge of finance, not randoms at home. But yeah, the idea that there's no pattern that you could exploit is not intuitive. And you know, I also meet people... People, have, I think, many, have the strong intuition that if there's a change in ex- an exchange rate, you know, between pounds and euros, and it goes in one direction, then it will tend to go back in the other direction in future. So they're inclined to wait and uh, expect it to return where it was before. That feels more normal than the idea that, no, it's just always, a random, like it, the past is irrelevant, it's just always going to move in a random uh, motion. So I wonder if that could be doing something that, you know, in the ancestral environment, there weren't really these systems that were set up where it was so competitive that there was no predictable pattern that you could exploit. So people do have the sense that, well, if I pay attention to the line going up and down, I'll eventually be able to figure out the way to win this. Where in fact, that's just not possible in this case. Uh, and so they're getting a bit tricked.
0: No, I agree. I mean, uh, the stock market is, 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 I think, particularly maybe counterintuitive for, for, sort of for the reason you're, you're sketching that on the one hand, it is true that you have a lot of you know very clever and, you know, very well-equipped, technically, people who are looking into this and who are doing their best to make money. And the idea that intuitively it feels like, well, you know, if that should be the case, then you should be able to to predict something because these are intelligent agents and, and you should be able to predict their behavior. And it's not intuitive that precisely because you have all of these people competing with each other to try to, to make the best of it, then whatever is going to, re- going to remain is going to be noise. And that, that I don't think that's intuitive that you get noise out of the combination of the behavior of a lot of intelligent agents, competing with each other i don't think that's a very intuitive intuitive thing yeah
1: yeah because in the i can't think of an example in kind of the pre-modern era where that would have been true maybe maybe there were some but it's a it's it's a peculiar peculiar scenario
0: yeah well no i mean not for man-made things i mean obviously there's there's a lot of randomness in in the weather or in these sort of things but but for man-made things yeah people
1: think they can predict that too yeah people (laughs) think they
0: can predict that too to some extent yeah but I, i guess also for for behaviors in most cases, it was probably better to try to figure out what was going on and to think you could anticipate things instead of just giving up. But yeah, these are probably heuristics that work in most cases, but that just happen to be mistaken in that very, 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 very weird context.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think... I mean, other, another mistake that people, I think, make is they tend to, they might make money, but then they've done worse than what they would have done if they'd invested in an index fund or if they'd invested in something more boring. So they compare it to nothing, whether, whereas they should compare it to a consistent, uh, consistent uh, like average return. Though I guess in the day trading case, it's not going to save day trading because day traders lose lose money in absolute terms. They just lose money. Uh, uh, okay. What about the other one? So so the multi-level marketing scams?
0: I'm not sure if they're a thing in, in France, but... Uh, I guess they have to be. So I don't, People don't talk about it that much. So I assume it's it's less of a, of, a, of a big thing than the US. So you are saying that people waste hours doing this. Like, I, I don't know to what extent that time is wasted. I mean, to some extent, there are a lot of people who like selling things. And, you know, if you're someone, maybe a lot of these people, you know, if they're, you know, homemakers or, or people whose time, who have some time anyway, and, uh, and they'd be happy to try to do something with that time to try to make some money. Then you know, and you know, selling things, and you know, you're spending time with friends and with other people that might be interesting to talk to, and you're trying to sell them this product that you yourself maybe you know, think is not such a bad product. I can sort of see how that would not be necessarily unpleasant. Uh, like, I'd be surprised if a lot of people like gave up a well-paying job to do this, or if, or if like deeply introvert people would you know take that up. Mm. So I think there are, there might be some advantages that people perceive, and I just don't know the data about how much. Like, how many in how many cases is it really bad? Is it really disruptive to your personal, personal finances that you took that up? Uh, so, it's possible that in many cases you sort of, you know, you lose a bit of money, but you know, it's kind of entertaining and maybe you can make a bit of money and be sure a bit lucky. I mean, like, yeah, I just don't know how bad it is for most people. I'd be surprised if it was really terrible for millions of people. Like it seems as if people would know about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the more typical case is that people fizzle out after losing uh, like a small amount of money or a modest amount of time, and then there are other people who do get like a really they, they get really convinced and then they lose more substantial amounts. So yeah, of course, there's a there, there's a there's a range. I mean, I think the standard story for why people fall for this is that the mathematics of why it doesn't work, the mathematics of why it's a scam where only the first few percent can can come out ahead. Is not so straightforward it's not intuitive because it involves geometric growth rather than linear growth Uh, and it just requires an ability to do to like dive into spreadsheets that i i remember trying to figure this out myself and it it took it took took me a minute to figure out how to how to model it and eventually i did because i I knew the result but so you didn't start selling tupperwares (laughs) Uh, but by the way you should definitely get pyrex tupperware do not get plastic tupperware i uh, i'm not selling it but pyrex tupperware is the way to go fair enough um on the other hand, you know, if people Google uh, about these schemes and they can get, they can find the results written up. Um, but I, I wonder whether there's another social thing going on here where people are convinced to do it by their friends. It's it's like set up in quite a clever way where you recruit other people who trust you, and it's actually sometimes the trust, the, the like the destruction of the trust between friends when the whole thing falls apart. That is that is really uh, destructive. So I, I think I think there might be a bit of clever design here where other people who have set up these businesses or how they've evolved over time, they are. Hijacking intuitions that were sound in another environment and here are not working
0: as well. No, no, that sounds right. Yeah, but, but yeah, it would be interesting to look at comparative data. Other countries are more vulnerable to this. And if he ask kind of why uh, what is like the sociology in a way of these places that might explain why uh, why people in these countries are more vulnerable
1: okay so yeah another simpler example I think is belief in astrology which is which is pretty widespread and I think I've heard it's I've heard it's actually growing so I think many people just treat it like an entertainment you know um, They just kind of enjoy it for the the, the sake of it. Like, I don't know, the same way that someone enjoys a crossword. Mm -hmm. But other people do seem to actually base sometimes uh, business or personal relationship decisions on what they think astrology is telling them is going to happen. Yeah. How how can you explain people believing and acting on the uh, idea intuitively that stars millions of light years away are affecting, taking interest in their lives and uh, changing their dating prospects?
0: Yeah, this one is also one that I'm not really sure about. I mean, it's, it's interesting that it's cross-culturally, like it's not as common as something as bloodletting, but we find that in a number of different cultures. Maybe because the movements of planets is one of the first things that people were able to predict accurately. One of the first things in, in the natural environment that people were able to figure out, okay, well, we can tell that Mars is going to be in that place in the sky at, at such and such time. And so, at least, you know, before modern science... If you run into someone who is able to tell you, "Well, oh, look, you know, you see that bright thing in the sky. You know, in two weeks it's going to be over there." It looks very impressive, and so you can see how people might have. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's not. You know, it shouldn't be the case anymore. But that might that might have helped That might help explain how astrology got started. It's plausible as well. I mean, one of the ways in which I don't know if that's true or not, but I see early astrologies as, as uh, like applying for grants if you're an early, like an early time astronomer, because, you know, no one is going to pay you just to look at the stars for the sake of it. but <laughs> if, if you can get people to say, no, give me money because I'm, I'll be able to predict when when, you know, when you'll become king or whatever, then they'll give you money to do what you really want, which is just, you know, figuring out how the stars and planets work. So astrology is one specific case, but broadly kind of divination practices are quasi-universal. Like in just about every culture, people will engage in some form of divination, whether it's, you know, reading the tea leaves, you know, entrails, whatever. So we know that that exists. So there is a desire, obviously, to to know the future, which is very understandable. And it's possible that one of the functions of, of, of divination more generally was as a way of, of kind of coordinating people. So if you're... Like if it's hard, I think, for a single individual, but if, if you're more like a group and you have to make a decision, and it's kind of hard to figure out... First of all, it's hard to figure out what's the best decision, and there'll be conflicts of interest, then divination is a way of randomizing things. Well, we're just going to do something, and then either the person doing the divination is going to tilt things, tilt the balance in the way that, you know, they think is the best, or it's just going to be random. But at least we all agree, What? well, we're just going to do whatever the definition says. So I think that helps explain why, uh, at least in some context, you, you have these sort of practices. Uh, when it comes to to people in modern societies who really base their behavior on astrology, then again, I don't know the data. Like, I, as you were saying, most people treat it as as mystic and entertainment. But I just don't know how many people would base really consequential decisions, personal decisions on that. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, what are the alternatives? Like there are many decisions for which like we have conflicting intuitions. The odds of us making the right call are about 50-50. So, you know, it's not gonna make things worse. Like, you know, if they if if what would be really shocking, I guess, would be people making really counterintuitive decisions. Like let's say, you know, you're with you're with the perfect partner and they you love them. And everything about them is like you know she's going to be perfect for the rest, or he's going to be perfect for the rest of my life. And then you read your uh, your horoscope, it's like you know oh you know you should break up with your partner. Oh well then I mean, how many people do that? (laughs) Like you know, I, I I hope it's not many. And I really think it's not many. That might be one reason why the horoscopes are usually
1: very vague. So you can kind of read into them whatever you want to, whatever you want to hear.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is going to be post
1: I do remember reading um, some. I think that they were looking back on divination practices in ancient China, and I think they detected some pattern in the results, uh, which suggested that the that the the dice were loaded, the dice were rigged, basically. I think that they were doing bone divination here. Um, yeah. And. I think that they identified that things were tending to swing in the side of the, the people who are who were in power at the time, whatever kind of conclusion they wanted.
0: hasard.
1: <laughs> yeah. So so that might make make some sense. I, I think yeah, we're slightly struggling with this one. My, my, my take is that the great majority of people do just treat it like an entertainment, uh, and probably actually are not disadvantaged because, like you say, they're not going to do anything that stupid. And maybe, mm. maybe having this kind of random influence of your life, where sometimes it tells you, it encourages you to go and do something, gives you the energy and enthusiasm to go and do something that maybe was a good idea anyway. And if something's clearly a bad idea, you're just going to ignore it, so uh, you're never really led that astray. You know, for 95% of people who pay attention to astrology, it's a harmless, maybe, and like possibly accidentally beneficial uh, practice. And and then maybe you have some people out on the tail who do take it too seriously they they actually they they believe the con a little bit too much uh and then uh, and it does end up harming them but it's not not so obvious that that's the case that uh, that necessarily puts off everyone else, so the practice can kind of continue. Yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a it's a tough one.
0: Yeah, no, no it, it, it is an interesting example. Yeah.
1: Okay, so yeah, a third cluster is kind of medical treatments that don't work. So mm-hmm. some cases of medical treatments that don't function are subtle, and it would be legitimately challenging for even professionals to stay up with the research and figure out what is legitimately a really good treatment for 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 some condition or and what's not. Medicine's a tricky business, but other examples do feel much more clear cut, um, and I think. Even a moderately bright and attentive person shouldn't be falling for some of these some of these schemes. We mentioned homeopathy earlier, which has no conceivable way of working. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) and indeed has been proven not to work. Well, obviously, (laughs) Uh, but it's still widely sold. So, so we we talked a little bit then about how that could be, uh, how that might be sustained in France. Similarly, you've got pseudoscientific parts of medicine like chiropractic or osteopathy that just have no evidence behind them and kind of a cursory Google search would turn up their extremely suspicious history uh, but still like people spend a lot of money on this stuff and sometimes it's not so harmless because chiropractic treatment can often harm people it can, it can give them back problems that are even worse than what they came in with there's nutritional supplements that are really peddled by pharmacies and nutritious shops shops that are not necessarily don't help you and you know a number of them I guess the fat soluble ones that stick around in your body can, can even be actively harmful, but continue. it's a big business. Lots of, lots of money made selling this, this, this junk. I could probably come up with a bunch of dubious weight loss or nutrition or dietary fads that achieve massive popularity despite not having much going for them. So yeah, um, uh, just are a bunch of cases that you there, but how might you approach kind of modeling and explaining people using medicines that don't work where it's possible for a reasonable person to figure out that they don't?
0: I think it, it com- you have to think of, of the demand dimension. So why do people demand these treatments? Like, I don't think that the success is owed to the supply in the sense that people develop these therapies and then they try to push them on people. And I think I th- instead, I think there's a demand for that. And what makes me say that is that essentially they're universal. Like in every culture, uh, you have this, uh, and that's in a way maybe more understandable in cultures that don't have access to, to modern science and to modern medicine, but even in these cultures in which essentially very few or none of the treatments that they use will be efficient, they still exist. And as you were saying, these things persist even uh, when you have uh, when you have modern modern medicine to go by and modern science. And so that suggests that somehow, for some reasons, people want that. And and if there is an influence of kind of marketing and these sort of things, it's going to be on which treatment people seek instead of the fact that they're going to seek a treatment in the first place, or so they're going to seek you know, a way of, of stopping their back pains or getting them, you know, more energy. So the question is then is, you know, why do people want to do something when there is really not that much to be done? And I guess in most cases, it's it's a reasonable heuristic. Like if you have a problem, there aren't that many problems for which doing nothing is going to work. Uh, it just so happens that health is, is one of these things in which most diseases are going to get better. Uh, most, you know, ailments are going to improve of their own accord. But that's not true for most things in our lives. Like if your computer is broken, uh, it's very unlikely that it's going to fix itself. So I mean, the, po- the posture of when well thing- well something is not going great, I'm going to try to do something about it, uh, is not completely unreasonable, obviously. And so when, when, if you're in a situation in which it feels as if the, the official options haven't done anything for you, then you're going to turn to something else. So you've been to the physiotherapist and the physiotherapist didn't really manage to solve your back problems, then you're going to try to turn to someone else. And then there'll be people who are going to fill to fill that void because there are problems that just, you know, either they're going to get better on their own or that just nothing really can be done, unfortunately, or at least not easily. For chiropractors, my intuition is that obviously like, the theory is completely bogus. But I think in practice, a lot of them are just quite good physiotherapists like they just happen to be and then they have this whole image because it's easier to sell if you're not just like a physiotherapist who's supposed to do basic things but you know you're you're, you have something that's kind of deeper you understand things on another level and you can talk to people but but they're just good physiotherapists essentially and and most of them have a training as a physiotherapist and they're just going to do the thing that any good physiotherapist would do
1: Okay, so that's one way that the thing could start out as rubbish, but then they adopt the good methods and then maybe it it becomes more reasonable over time. It seems like there's there's this cluster of cases where things that don't work seem like they work. And in the health case, as you were pointing out, people typically go and get treatment, especially, especially treatment where the evidence for it working is not so great, when they're kind of desperate and when things are worse than they usually are. And then when things are worse than they usually are, they get better. (laughs) Then they tend to get better on average. So I wonder whether there's this illusion that like anything that you attempt to do when your condition is abnormally bad will seem after the fact like it was helpful because you probably got better in most cases. And there'll be more people saying, I tried this and then I got better than people saying, I tried this and then I got worse because generally they just regress to their long-term average level of health.
0: No, I completely agree. And then again, it's it's, it's one of the reasons why we have more superstitious beliefs about about health and about your computer. Your computer is not gonna fix itself. So if you if you give if you spray holy water on your computer, it's not going to fix itself. So you're not going to believe, oh holy water, fix my computer. But if you if you if you have a cold and you you know you get someone sprays you with holy water, then you will actually get better from the cold. And so it's easier to believe that that it works in that case. So no, you're you're completely right. I mean, health is is weird in that in that sense, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I guess, yeah, I suppose what's going on there is that there's this internal invisible process fixing the problem uh, that you can't mm-hmm. see, and you not, and people were not necessarily aware of the the immune system and other and other repair mechanisms, uh, and that that is something that occurs in the in in the body of animals that doesn't occur elsewhere necessarily. Okay, and then in the in the finance case with with day trading. It's harder to see because we know that most people who try it are losing money in absolute terms. They they come a, they walk away with less money than they started and gambling even 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 more so maybe. I wonder though there where you can have a reporting bias where people will talk about how they won at day trading, if they make money in the occasional and that but they don't tend to go out on Twitter and say no I lost. <laughs> I'm a moron who like uh, invested 100,000 uh, dollars trying to day trade and then I came away with 50,000. Um they tend to obscure that. They might not even tell their partners let alone strangers. So you get this really, if you're someone who just looks at the at the field of people talking about it, it will always seem as if it's working.
0: No, no, I agree. You know, that's, there's likely a reporting bias, yeah, uh, both in terms of, like, you're more likely to report positive than negative stories, and and the amplitude of positive stories can be much larger than the amplitude of negative stories. So in terms of health, another factor is, it's not just health, I mean, but but particularly maybe in, the term, in terms of health is Possibly there are people who suggested that one of the reasons why we really want to do something when we get sick is is we want to show others that we are really sick. Uh, because, you know, when you're sick, people help you. You know, your family is going to look after you. Maybe your friends, your colleagues are going to pick up the slack and this sort of things. And... Um, and and because of that, uh, how do you call that kind of malingering, right? Yeah, uh, malingering. Yeah, is always uh, is always a risk. And indeed, people fake you know diseases in provisional contexts in, in, in kind of substantial mm-hmm. numbers. And so possibly one of the one of the reasons of, of making sure that people are not malingering too much is uh, that when you tell, okay, well, if you're sick, then you have to take to do this, and this is pretty unpleasant. So that if you're sick, well, okay, sure, I'm going to do this, and then you know you're going to help me and look after me. Uh, even if what I'm doing is completely useless. Whereas if you're not sick, it's like okay, well, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and so, if you think of many therapies that are somewhat unpleasant, like you know, like you know, we were talking about bloodletting earlier, sedations, laxatives, emetics. Like a lot. It seems as if a lot of of therapies have this unpleasant dimension. Uh, that even if the therapy itself is useless, doing it, like imposing it on others, might make sense. And then doing, you know, accepting it when you're sick, might make sense. And that you're showing others, look, or you know, like you know. Drinking, you know, kind of castor oil or whatever disgusting thing. Like, like <laughs> yeah. it's, it seems, it feels more efficient because it's 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 more costly. But in fact, maybe what you're doing is signaling uh, to people who might help you that you're deserving of help because you're really sick. Yeah, you're not pretending.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I never, never, never thought of that one. I guess the, the, the story in which humans just had. Really exceptional judgment, and were really hard to, uh, to, to like, for people to trick, or indeed just for circumstances to trick, would be that we could do this intuitive adjustment on the selection effect of people over reporting successes and under reporting failures and, and see through that and just not update in favor of day trading being effective. And I guess, to be honest, like, most people probably do. Like, I, I don't know that many people who are fooled by, you know, financial uh, things that they see online. At least, I don't know, maybe I have a non representative sample. Like, I think a typical person hears that stuff and is like, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to do your stupid finance thing. Uh, but then, you know, the one in 20 people who is persuaded, yeah, they, they, they can get into a lot of trouble. And then you have all of the people you were saying who just intuitively want to do it anyway. Uh, they, they, they feel like
0: it makes sense. Yes. No, I think I think there's quite a demand. I mean, obviously, gambling is a, is a, is a big a successful industry. Yeah.
1: Okay. Let's turn now to the question of AI and LLMs and generative models and, and whether we should worry about them being able to convince people to believe things that are not true. So... yeah, I want to I be want to be careful here and I want to be subtle here because, of course, there's going to be some issues here. There, there has to be. Uh, you know, any, any new technology for producing and spreading contents got, got got to lead to some misinformation and confusion to at least to some non-zero extent. And the thing I want to push back on is that we should expect a really dire situation with respect to AI and that we should expect it to lead into big swings in public opinion or, or a big increase in the extent to which society is more out of touch with reality than than, than it already is. So, so as I mentioned earlier, the modern world with all of its like, uh, weird, delicious foods is caused people that eat an unhealthy diet uh, because their evolved intuitions that previously collected what was tasty with what was healthy uh, are kind of exploitable. And so we can imagine that AI-generated content can play a similar role at like gunking up our information environment and making things more challenging for us to to figure out in the same way that, oh, I suppose, yeah, you, you would disagree with the with the, with the nacho cheese Doritos analogy that there, there are some important differences there. Uh, but either way, like the environment could shift in a way that makes it yet more challenging for us to to discern what's really going on. Now, one piece of framing that, I might, that might be useful is that I've kind of found four different ways that people worry AI is going to lead to mass persuasion. Uh, and I've tried to give them names uh, to, to to help, to help clarify the conversation. So the first one I call inundation AIs, which is just AIs that write massive numbers of articles, all arguing for some conclusion X. Then uh, you've got silver-tongued AIs, which are just generally extremely persuasively written content. Somehow they just are like the best lawyer, the best advocate for the position that you could imagine. And they're more persuasive than any human being is, is now. And so they're going to be able to persuade people of X. Then you've got scalpel AIs, uh, which is kind of, uh, AIs that write extremely personalized persuasion, where like these models are going to harvest everything you've ever written or posted, and then write an article that's most designed to convince you uh, of X by figuring out exactly what will convince uh, convince that individual person. And then you've got uh, the spam a spam approach, which is just to produce an enormous amount of junk articles and misleading content that causes people to give up on figuring out what is true. So they just confuse people by causing them to reject the entire enterprise. So I think it's worth evaluating each of them a little bit separately, because the reasoning behind each is, is, is not, not at all the same. So yeah what's your overall view on whether we should worry about llms or ai is making public discourse about important
0: topics uh worse yeah i don't think we should worry (laughs) (laughs) okay so you're you're a little bit
1: more extreme than me maybe
0: yeah i mean it's just i i'm I'm happy i mean i'm not happy i would rather not be frustrated of of the opposite because uh you know i'm I'm happy that not to be worried yeah i've talked i've talked to people about this and and uh, i mean the then again my colleagues tend to be uh, on on the same side of the issue as i am i guess to some extent but um, like I haven't seen a scenario that I deemed plausible in which AI or kind of LLMs were making things really worse. So I, I mean, it's, obviously I should specify this is not an area I'm really knowledgeable. Uh, at, I mean, misinformation I know about, but LLMs in particular I don't know it. I don't know much about. So there might be things I'm I'm underestimating uh, due to that ignorance, but people who know more about these things haven't been able to convince me otherwise, I'd say.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so maybe let's go through the four different approaches then, uh, one by one. Um, So yeah, how how useful would it be to take the inundation approach to generate just enormous numbers of articles um, arguing for a given conclusion using all kinds of different arguments, I guess?
0: Well, I mean, first of all, there's already an essentially infinite amount of information on the internet. So the the, the bottleneck is not how many articles there are on any given topic because there's already like way more than anybody will ever read. Uh, the bottleneck is people's individual attention, and and that bottleneck is largely controlled by, um, for, I mean, to some extent by Wenskan kind of peers and colleagues on social network, but otherwise mostly by the big actors in the field, by you know cable news, by by big newspapers, and and this there's no reason to believe these things are going to change dramatically. So so having an, another you know one thousand articles on on a given issue. Just no one is going to read them.
1: Yeah, this is the thing that made me skeptical of This of when, when I really thought about it. If I imagine myself running a propaganda campaign, I guess, especially one that's already kind of financed and has enough supporters that you could write a meaningful number of articles arguing for something already. And then I'm like, don't you hit pretty declining returns just on the sheer volume of them? You know, I could imagine it helping. I, I suppose... If you didn't have many resources, it could make it a little bit cheaper because you could write, you could potentially write opinion pieces where otherwise, perhaps if you weren't very educated or you didn't speak the language that you were focusing on very well, then I suppose these things could make it cheaper to do that. You could you could have an assistant. But the idea that it would be helpful to produce these very large numbers doesn't seem like the key thing, because the question is like, how do you get people to read them and take them seriously? And there, the bottleneck is just a, it's just a different stage. It's not the production stage, which is relatively cheap, I would imagine, in the scheme of things. It's um, how do you how do you get anyone
0: to care to give a damn about what you've made? Yes, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if you text someone, who, let's say you want you you, you wanted to write an op-ed and to push it to people on, on Facebook or something. Like, you know, you could hire someone to write the op-ed, it's gonna take you, you know, it's gonna cost you a few thousand dollars. Then getting more than a few hundred people to read it on Facebook is gonna cost you a lot of money. And that's just people you're gonna have people to click on the thing. And you know, one out of a hundred of people who click would actually read the whole thing. So that's that's the bottleneck. It's not the number of, of things that are written, it's, it's how many things people read.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess it could allow it could allow you to come up with more iterations and test more different messages. And some of them will be a bit better than others, so you can
0: get a bit of a gain there. But even then, that, that presume that assumes that people re- will read them. Otherwise, you're going to get no feedback. I mean, it's just. I see. Yeah. People. I mean, people don't read the news in the first place, so it's going. <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> you're saying that people read the headlines, right? Uh, but you think. Yeah. They, some yeah. some people read some headlines. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, like people. I mean, some people do read the news obviously, but it's it's much less than we than we believe. Yeah.
1: Not with great care. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that we can say for this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose if, if I was like the Russian propaganda ministry, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I suppose it, it would it would allow me to quickly churn out more opinion pieces about more topics. And perhaps like some of them might take off because like by chance they turned out well. But like, how do you... But yeah, it just doesn't feel like it's, it's not targeting what I would feel was my key bottleneck. <laughs> uh, and so that's the thing that limits its impact.
0: But yeah, I mean, you, where you're right, I guess, is that like you can imagine that for this, the impact may be more negative than positive because... If you're a respectable newspaper, uh, you're not going to get your articles written by by ChatGPT. Whereas if you are a Russian propagandist, you might. So the cost, the, the the reduction in cost, may be greater for the bad guys and for the good guys. But it's not. So maybe at the at the margin is going to make a very small difference because the cost of writing papers, as you are saying, is not the major cost anyway. But you know, it's going to if it decreases the cost of doing that a little bit, then they might have more money to spread to use on on disseminating the content. But then again, it's going to be a very, it's going to make a very very small difference. Yeah. And also, I mean, obviously, you know, LLMs might also help the good guys in other ways. They can't, you know, they're not going to just say, "Well, you know, write an article about this," and, and the article is written. But ho- obviously, journalists might find it tremendously helpful to ask questions to LLMs to to help them do other parts of their jobs. You know, short of writing the final piece.
1: Okay. Yeah. I should I should maybe say that in the book you discuss fake news and misinformation in general, uh, and mostly like to cut a long story short. The evidence that fake news and like deliberate misinformation is causing large numbers of people to change their minds about things is not very good. That there are a reasonable number of people do con- at least in the US, there are a reasonable number of people who do consume fake news, but overwhelmingly they're the people who are most extremely partisan to start with. So it's that they want to read fake news that endorses their preconceptions because they really enjoy it as a sort of recreation, really. And it doesn't cause them to change their views that much. It's more that their views cause them uh, to want to consume the, the the information. So is there anything else you want to say about that at a high level? Uh, people can go away and read the book, of course, if they would like to know more.
0: No, no, it's, it's, it's exactly right. So, I mean, essentially, I mean, if you're in a democracy, and to some extent even in dictatorships, but clearly in democracies, the informational environment is going to be driven by demand overwhelmingly the things that are there are there because people want to read about them, they want to hear about them, and not because someone is trying to push them. Uh, Obviously, you know, journalists and editors also have some some agency. I'm not denying that, and they're going to work on some stories rather than others. But the selection bias operated by the population as a whole is going to be so massive. And the fact that journalists themselves, I mean, they want to write something that people will read so mostly, if you see a lot of fake news for something, it's because people wanted to hear this. And so presumably because they already agreed with it. Um, and indeed, as you are saying, it's been quite well shown by now that, first of all, there's like the, the amount of fake news that circulates is very small. It's like a few percentage of, of the information that circulates on, on social networks is, is fake news. Like really like 2-3% at most. Uh, and that, that very small percentage is overwhelmingly consumed by people who are politically extreme and and whose views fit with uh, with that. So that's gonna have no effect.
1: Okay, so to some extent, we're forced to speculate about this second one, the idea of kind of a silver-tongued AI that is, um, somehow learns through training to be more persuasive than, than human beings currently are by just being, I don't know, a superbly persuasive writer, superbly good advocate. But yeah, if LLMs continue advancing far beyond the level that they're at today, and also, maybe you maybe have fine you know they're fine tuned for the persuasiveness uh, uh you know, aspect of the persuasiveness characteristic in particular, yeah, do you think that they could do much to change people's minds about important topics by just writing really really good books or i don't know op eds about uh, this or that
0: i mean then again, the bottleneck is how much are people paying attention? Like, and as we were saying earlier, on, on, on most issues, people are not. I mean,
1: maybe the most important thing here would be that they need to find, uh, y- they could be very entertaining. So they could be extremely engaging while pushing pushing a message. So maybe you could at least get an audience in that sense.
0: Yeah, no, 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 possibly, yeah. Okay, so then the question is, why would that favor sort of, so to speak, the bad guys rather than the good guys? It's not clear to me. So if, if a LLM has managed to be very good at this, then you might imagine that um, as long as journalists do their fact checking and make sure that everything that is said is correct, why not use an LLM to help, you know, uh, make your story a bit more interesting if they get that good at it? And so, given that people are already exposed overwhelmingly more to, to like reliable news than to than to fake news, any change in in how appealing true news are compared to fake news is going to be vastly more influential. So you'd have to imagine that the impact this has on the spread of misinformation is like orders of magnitudes larger than the impact it has on the spread of reliable information. For this to make a difference, uh, going going in the wrong direction.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, so so that's just on the engagingness, and you're saying well, the engagingness of all articles would rise in this situation, and so it would kind of be competed to a draw, roughly. I suppose you might have some might have a thing where currently it's easier for like bigger, more resourced institutions to make engaging content because it, because it's quite expensive. And then in future, this might just become a commodity thing where like it's very cheap to make something engaging and that would make it easier for a less resourced group to compete for attention. Does that sound plausible?
0: Sure. Then again, it's not clear it would be a bad thing, right?
1: Yeah, I suppose in as much as you thought that smaller groups were more likely to be misleading, uh, I guess it depends on maybe on how much you trust, <laughs> how much you
0: trust the New York Times versus others. I mean, I, I do trust the New York Times, but but there are issues for which, like you know, for which they will get it wrong, or they will not report on, on an issue that is actually important, and and maybe like a very local newspaper or a blogger or something or, or might not have the means of of you know the time to create a very compelling story. If that can help them make a story that is actually compelling, uh, truly compelling, uh, like make it to show others that it is compelling. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I mean, people are not stupid, so they will get feedback. So if if you manage to make a story that is completely non-story, very compelling, you know, people are going to pick up on that and they're going to they're going to stop listening to you. I mean, especially if you're if you have to lie to make the story compelling, or if you have to exaggerate to a degree that that's you know kind of not good.
1: Yeah, so so we can imagine making LLMs kind of more and more convincing, like getting they get smarter and smarter, and they become like more more and more effective advocates for a given view. Mm-hmm. And on some people's view, you could imagine that that tops out, like you know, in ten, hundred years time, whenever we have the most amazing technology, there you could kind of persuade someone of anything, like any in, in, at least a normal human today, because like so great would be your persuasive powers. Your model is that it caps out at not necessarily that far above the level of persuasiveness of the most charismatic, the most persuasive human beings today, because we're just we just are not influenceable by by language most of the time, or it's so hard to get people to to care what
0: you say. Yes. I mean, for things that are complicated and that would take very long arguments, the bottleneck is gonna be attention. Like, you know, that I don't think there's a way of of, you know, making a good case, a good a complicated moral case for an issue that is not completely, you know, obvious in a in a paragraph. And if you have to read a book, so maybe a book written by a, I mean, I'm not sure that will ever happen, but let's say let's say that an AI can write a book that is more persuasive than any human author, it's still going to be the case that, you know, five people are going to read the book. And these people probably have very strong views to start with. <laughs>
1: So yeah, part of your model of the world is also just that people, when they realize that there's a risk that they're going to be tricked, they just shut down. So you can imagine in, in a world where it's very easy to produce this compelling, slick content, people learn the lesson that anyone can make slick content. And so they just stop paying. They, they, they might engage with it for entertainment value, but they won't necessarily regard it as very strong evidence for any particular conclusion.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. I think people are already very good at this. I mean, people like people who write smart political books, it's quite doable to write up an argument that seems persuasive, but because you're very selectively reporting evidence is yeah. actually really misleading. And people are already very good at this. Uh, AI is probably, you know, LLMs will make it easier, no doubt. I, I mean, I, I would imagine. But I also, I mean, I want to be careful with what I'm saying on the whole is that I, I don't want to make people believe that it's impossible to change people's minds. You know, because if you do spend the time, if you... Like what seems to work at scale is really the accumulation of evidence, in particular evidence co- or kind of arguments conveyed by people who are kind of near you. If you look, for instance, if you look at, at how opinions change uh, throughout, like for long periods of time, uh, it seems as if, so we know that opinions have changed dramatically on some things, like you know gay marriage, or you know, it used to be a kind of interracial inter- marriage, trans rights, like many things are changing relatively quickly. And most of that is, is generational changes, like young people being different from older people. But for some issues, there is some changes within individuals. And so, uh, for instance, people have, on, the, on average, people have become more uh, pro-gay marriage over the past like 40 years in, in most Western cultures. Even like, not just young people are more pro-gay marriage, but individual people have changed. So that kind of change is possible. But it's only possible with an issue is, when an issue is very, very, like it's, it's the big thing that everybody talks about for a long time. And when you have a lot of people in your surroundings who are making arguments, it's not just reading things in the media. It's like you talk to people in your family, your friends, and your colleagues, and that works. Like it really, you can have a dramatic impact on society. But it's hard to imagine how LLMs maybe maybe they can increase the wheels a little bit by providing better, better arguments a little bit. But but then again, the main the main bottleneck is attention. Like that's not going to happen for every issue that there is, because every issue can't be in the in the headline uh, in the headlines all the time
1: let's let's talk a little bit more about what what does work. So, so I think you're saying that direct experience of things is persuasive to people. So I guess you know the classic example is they meet someone who has come out as gay and they're like, "This person seems totally fine to me. They meet them with their partner and they're like, "I don't really see anything wrong with this relationship, and I hung out with them." And that to people is just enormously compelling, more compelling than any opinion piece. Okay. And then you also have people trust their friends and family and colleagues, people they know well. Uh, so if several of them start making an argument at them, you know, over the dinner table or uh, you know at, at, the, at the lunch table at the office, then that gets a lot of weight relative to something that you might read in a newspaper.
0: Is is that broadly the picture? Yes, I mean it's honestly uh, the honest answer is we don't really know because this sort of impersonal influence. Uh, there is some indirect evidence that it plays a role. Like for instance, people have shown that people who talk about climate change are more likely to become more believing in climate change and that, it's, you know, it's, it's man-made. And they're more likely to want to talk to other people about that. There's also evidence that from, uh, what's it called, this thing, when you get canvassing, like when you go to people's houses, like people, in, some, in a nice experiment, people went to people's houses and they talk about trans rights for 20 minutes. Yeah. Uh, and that had a small but discernible influence on people's attitudes. So you can imagine if these kind of conversations are repeated, you know, many, many times, then that can be they can explain how things change on the, on a large scale but here you need you, you need to have a meaningful discussion from someone who you have kind of no reason to distrust and they can exchange arguments they can share their experiences they can ask you to empathize with these people by imagining you know sh- you know experiences you had that were similar to theirs so you know it's it's possible but it's something that's it's just hard to imagine how you can scale it up
1: okay what about the approach that i called uh kind of scalpel, uh, in which everyone can be delivered an individualized pitch for X given their existing views and and their personality. So they could be given the arguments that are most convincing given their their preconceptions. Do you think that can meaningfully increase the impact of an effort at persuasion?
0: Well, I think it's essentially the same as the other one because probably given how good people already are at making arguments, the only thing that's stopping a book by Peter Singer or some brilliant philosopher or brilliant thinker to persuade more people, more of the people who read the book, uh, is that he can't personalize the arguments. Like if you know if Peter Singer could talk to if every individual reader, I would assume that he would be way more persuasive. Because I'm sure there are many counterarguments that he hasn't been able to put into his books, and 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 you know obviously he's extremely clever, and so presumably he would be way more persuasive in person. And so I think that if there is going to be a delta in persuasion compared to what's already out there, it's going to be in in that personalization. Uh, but as we are saying, even that like it's not clear how you would scale it up because just people don't have that much time
1: I see. So yeah, the bottleneck becomes how do you you could you could you could come up with a personalized argument for them, but how do you get people to pay attention to you? And there, just as everything becomes more entertaining, maybe because LLMs are able to make things more entertaining, uh, they're able to like do it. Yeah, do a mashup between I don't know an argument for nuclear power and Hamilton, <laughs> or like something yes. some something. <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, but but then they're competing with everyone else who's trying to do the same thing, and so it's quite hard to get your to, to get an edge for like one particular view over other things in such a competitive information environment.
0: Yes, and, and I mean personalization can can do great things, but I mean it can make content. You know, if you could watch the exact series that that was appealed, appeal, you know, to exactly your taste, you know, in a way that would be really awesome. But on the other side, we also consume content, whether it's news or fiction or anything else, to, you know, to some extent because we want to be able to talk to others about it. So if you watch a movie that was made just for you, but that no one else can watch or enjoy because it's gonna it's not their taste. It sort of spoils some of the fun, and likewise, if you read some news or if you hear some arguments that are only compelling for you, and that if you try sharing them with others, people are not going to that's not going to appeal to them at all. It reduces the interest you have in, in having the thing in the first place, and it reduces this sort of what political scientists call this two-step flow—that you can't convince other people in turn because the thing has been so personalized to you that kind of the buck stops there. And and we know that a lot of persuasion. Comes from people, you know, being convinced by by the media or by government, and then passing on that 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 knowledge or that or those beliefs to others.
1: Okay, so finally, I want to come to this to this other worry, which which I called spam, and 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 to me, this is the most plausible way that AI could make the information environment worse. And this is just helping to produce and disseminate just vast amounts of low quality or misleading content, uh, even more than exists currently. And now I, I, we don't really expect that it's going to persuade anyone uh, to buy any particular conclusions, but it's an alternative effect where it's just increasing the noise that's out there. It's just cluttering up the internet with lots of untrustworthy information where it's a little, it's, it's kind of effortful to figure out that it's untrustworthy because it's presented, you know, it's it's made it, it looks like a paper, it looks like a real study, it looks like a real blog post. And so people realize that this is the case and they just begin to mistrust everything that they see a little bit more because a lot of the cues that they might use to judge the credibility of things are no longer as reliable as they used to be because they're they're too easy to fake so the end result is just, just that they give, they, for practical reasons, they give up on trying to form strong views on most topics. And they end up feeling that it's just not really worth the effort to learn about what's going on because it's so easy to generate some fake video of events that never happened or fake papers but wanting to show some conclusion or fake accounts creating the false impression about what people believe. And I think one reason I worry about this is that, as I understand it, this has kind of been an approach that many governments have used with their own populations when they're worried about them rebelling against them. is just to produce an enormous amount of noise and confusion where it's not that people believe that the regime is good but they no longer like trust any particular thing that they're observing so they just kind of opt out of public discourse and I think it's kind of already the case to, to, for me to a great extent in many areas because like basically I don't trust anything I read about the Russian invasion of Ukraine on social media because it just seems overrun with misleading propaganda from from both sides From ad- because almost everyone who talks about it is an advocate uh, for, for one view or another. And so the end result of me observing this was just I invested less effort in understanding things because it seemed too hard to separate uh, truth from lies. But uh, I mean, this could be worse and it could be widespread across across more issues. So yeah, what, what do you think of, of that risk? C- can you imagine that being something that plays out over time?
0: I mean, my intuition would be that uh, most people still rely on, on curation to a large extent. So you don't, you know, you, if, you, if you're going to trust a piece of news, to some extent, you make up your own mind uh, based on, on the content of the news. And if it's something that's too implausible, then you, you'll be skeptical. But for all the things that are within the range of things that are broadly plausible, the main moderator is going to be the source. So if you read that in a, in a reliable newspaper, if, if it's tweeted by a colleague that you trust, you know, at least within a given area of expertise, uh, then you know that's how you know that the information is is reliable or at least kind of worth considering. And and the fact that there's a lot of junk out there shouldn't change that fundamentally. Like, I mean, the only problem would be that if these you kind know, of these courtiers of information, these people who are going to relay information to you by uh, creating it themselves, if they become less reliable, if if it's if their job becomes so hard that they stop being reliable, then that then everything you know, stops working. But I'm not sure that LLMs are going to make the jobs of journalists in terms of you know figuring out what's true or not that different. I mean you still have to talk to people, you still have to check your sources. And in many ways LLMs can help them as well. So on on balance, it's not clear it's going to make things harder. I mean you're right when you were saying that the, obviously the the strategy of of many governments that already have uh, like a not very trustworthy political system. Is to increase that mistrust, so that at least more potentially more trustworthy agents can't uh, take can gain a foothold. And that's why you know like the Germans were trying in the Second World War were trying to discredit the BBC because they knew it was like impossible to get the Germans to believe German propaganda anymore. But at least they could try to discredit you know the other the other side. And and you have the same thing in Russia, or in China, etc. Uh, but that can only work. I mean, if 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 there is not much trust to start with, like if you have some actors that are trusted, it's not obvious how you how you're going to make that trust go away.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess one difference, or one thing that's distinctive about the case of an authoritarian government in a, a not very like a, in, a, in a low trust society, just flooding the zone with noise and misleading information in order to cause people to give up on figuring out what their political views should be. They have the ability, the power to push things out to people. Mm-hmm. They can grab this misinformation and like force it into people by influencing newspapers and so on. And so the attention bottleneck is less of a problem, and they're not competing with private already credible actors that people can turn to for curated, credible advice because they, they'll just shut down those newspapers, for example, or they'll, they, they'll kill or lock up the people who are too trusted already and so like actually could serve this useful function. So... I guess if you get into a situation like that, then now you are in trouble, and maybe it would, maybe it will be helpful for the Russian government to kind of pull the wool over their eyes of of their own people, or at least cause them to give up on understanding things, to to be able to produce enormous amounts of content all the time, videos of anything that they feel like. But hopefully, in a in a free society where you already have credible authorities that people where people can kind of uh, hope that they've done their homework to figure out whether something really happened or not, hopefully that effect should not be so severe.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, so then again, so the, you know, Russia is doing that. And, you know, with some effectiveness, like it's really... Like, uh, people are saying that Russia has been really good at brainwashing the Russian people into supporting the invasion. I think mostly they've been really good at stopping non-Russian media from changing Russian people's mind about the invasion. Uh, And they just, you know, they stuck with their priors that, you know, Ukraine wasn't great and that, you know, if the Russian government decided to invade them, they had good reasons, which is already, you know, really bad. Most people don't, I think, don't really care about the news and these sort of things that much. And and for these people you don't need flooding. I mean, you just need to have one official channel that they're going to watch anyway and that tells whatever whatever you want. So for these people, it doesn't matter much. And then for the people for whom it really matters, it's not that hard to find reliable information on most things. So, I mean, so I tissue, some issues are really, really kind of urgent and which like in the few hours after an event may be hard to get information, but looking back, usually it's not, you know, even for a few days or, or, or weeks, it's not that hard to find in- reliable information about most things. And so, if you're one of these people who really wants to figure out what's going on, stopping someone—I mean, except of really outright, very strong censorship—stopping um, someone from doing that is going to be a bit difficult, I think. But the flooding, because you were mentioning flooding, like a government that was flooding a lot is is China. And when when something goes wrong uh, and something, you know, the, the people might be upset with something. One of the things they do to stop too many people from talking about it and potentially from from organizing, you know, for things to change is it flood social networks with uh, celebrity news, gossip, uh, other things that people are by default more interested in than in hard news. And so they don't need even misinformation. And so then again, you can see how LLMs could generate more of that content, but it doesn't seem that hard to generate, and they're already kind of doing it. So maybe at the margin, it will cost them a little bit less to do it, but I don't think it's going to be vastly more efficient.
1: A question mark for me when I, was, when I was thinking about this in prepping for the interview is know, you and I we're, we're adults and we've grown up in a pre-generative AI era where we already have a lot of kind of established understanding of the world and and, and opinions and so I think it's it does get quite difficult to create any radical shift in your or my worldview. Not not, not easy at all mm-hmm. but imagine that you were born today and so you grow up your entire life in a world where we can imagine by the time you're uh, paying attention to any of this in five or ten years just the majority of articles might be written by like primarily written by generative models the majority of video might be generated by ai the majority of images might be ai generated I wonder, yeah, I, I just don't know what 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 cumulative effect does that have when you don't have a pre like a pregenerative AI understanding of the world that way kind of you could trust what you saw. You could trust the video that video are real. You could trust that these articles were at least written by a human being who was putting in some effort. i'm not I'm not necessarily saying it will be bad, but I, I just uh, you know the the way that this could play out over decades as as generations turn over, I, I I feel less confident about that.
0: I don't know. I mean, if you if you think about you know photography, Essentially, we're both born in a world in which you can make fake photographies that are really, really hard to to discern from the truth, because it can be done with very kind of you know really very kind of low tech methods, and then there's Photoshop and this sort of things. And yet, when you see a picture in the New York Times, then again, you still believe that that picture you know broadly happened. Like, I'm not sure why it would be different for other things. Like, people are still going going to be interested in in what's true um so otherwise i mean you know even now i mean people don't watch the news that much but they watch the news a bit even though they could only consume fiction if they wanted. so if it's a matter of just consuming things that are not true we can we could already max out on that now without any problem and many people uh, indeed do that but then if you're interested in figuring out what's true you have a very strong you know you won't want to see something that is that is made up you'll want to see the what you think is the actual thing and as long as there are these uh, institutions that, that curate things and that vouch for what they're spreading, uh, things are not going to change all that much. And I think this, to some extent, the same is true for writing. In a way, you can see LLMs as a continuity between just someone who just writes, who's not a professional writer, and then you go to school and you write for 10 years and you get extremely good at writing. The difference between like a native person's writing and an expert journalist's writing is larger than the difference between that, that journalist's writing and, and, and like even the best LLM in the world. Ever, because the, the the difference between a completely kind of naive person and, and a professional journalist is just so massive. Mm. So you know we've already had most of that gain in terms of making articles that are you know well written and, and persuasive and, and and all of that. So what matters at the end of the day is is who is vouching for it, like whose name, whose person, or whose institution is going to be like whose reputation is going to be damaged if the thing turns out to be false. And that's what matters is that there is a system in place of reputation. And that if if things go wrong, if the information turns out to have been mistaken, then there's someone that you can punish. And and therefore, there's someone who has an incentive to keep things uh, reliable.
1: Let's accept for the sake of argument that it does become easier to produce misleading content in future. I think some people envisage that the outcome of this would be people's opinions being changed in all sorts of random directions all the time. Whereas I think your model, and now my model, having read the book, is that it's not that people would start changing their mind more, it's that people would start changing their mind less because they would simply realise that, like, you know, as in, when, when people make really complex arguments in some field that I don't understand, I'm just like, and I don't trust the person, I don't believe that they are an authority, really, and I can't check the argument that they're making for myself, because I because uh, I don't understand it well enough, I simply don't change my mind. And likewise, in future, if people start noticing that it's possible to trick them into believing stuff all the time, uh, because they're incapable of noticing that a video is doctored, for example, then they just stop changing their mind at all in response to to these inputs, because they always just have the option of keeping their current views. And I think so. So yeah, do you agree that 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 would be where things would, um, in in a bad case, potentially bottom out?
0: Yes, I mean. Uh... Like it's increasingly easy to say, well, I mean, that video has been has been made up, so et etc. Cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure how much the technological impossibility of doing something ever was such a strong argument. Um, so if you know, if 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 you know, if 40 years ago someone were to tell you, look, you know, there's this picture that was that appeared in the New York Times, and they tell you, oh, you know, I think it's a fake picture, would your argument really have been, well, it's impossible to doctor a photo? Or would your argument have been, well, it's in the New York Times and also in the Washington Post and also everywhere else? Yeah. I think the argument always rests really ultimately on on reputation and not on the technical possibility of doing such and such, you know, trick. And and so there are always people who want to say, well, you know, I don't believe in that and they'll have more excuses, but I don't think it's going to make a big difference. So here I'm picturing a scenario where like, let's say that we end up in a worse
1: case than that, where we like the New York Times doesn't exist, or, the, or the, like the New York Times is no longer credible. And so you don't trust, there's no particular authority that you trust to determine the providence of an image or a video and to determine whether it's real or not. In that case, I think what happens is you just stop paying attention and you stop changing your mind. Yes. <laughs> so, so hopefully, hopefully we can solve it by having trustworthy sources and uh, like institutions that people believe have done the legwork to figure out if things are true. But if they don't, it won't be mass persuasion. It'll be mass indifference and mass mass stubbornness. I think. No, I
0: agree. But I mean, I mean, I'm kind of, I guess, an optimist by nature. But as long as there is a demand for truth, as long as some people, at least, for for some issues or most people, for You know, some issues, uh, some people for every issue maybe, they really care what's true. As long as there's a demand for that, and if there is not government intervention to stop institutions to meet that demand, that demand is going to be met somehow. Like, it makes sense if there are people who really care about the truth, then it makes sense for newspapers to appear who are mostly going to report on the truth. And that's what we see kind of in, in the, like the evolution of newspapers in the U.S. Like, if you only have one newspaper in a given place, it's, things are not really stable. Because if they say something wrong, no one is going to call them out. Uh, but as long as you have more than one uh, you know, source of information, then it's really hard for one of them to get away with saying something that's really false, because all the other ones are going to call them out on it. If you have enough, essentially, there's enough demand to... to pay for people to do that job, and for not just one institution, but for several institutions to do that job. And if the government is not stopping that from happening, it will happen. Like, you know, why not?
1: Yeah, on, the, on this topic of trustworthiness, I think one comment I want to make is that I think people underestimate the importance of official misinformation, which is uh, kind of the term that I use for lies or misleading claims that are just reported as fact by governments or officials or academics or, or major newspapers. Personally, I don't think that happens especially often. But when it does, it packs a much bigger punch than any kind of Russian botnet on social media, because obviously, yeah, yeah. you know, a Harvard academic going on PBS and asserting some incorrect thing about their specialty area is naturally very convincing to people, understandably, and, and the reach is, is is vastly larger as well. So, even though I think those cases are atypical, I think trying to like calling them out and trying to stamp them out is really important because each instance does a a lot to spread confusion and misunderstanding and in the long run it undermines trust that there are any, any authorities that we can turn to and be reasonably confident that they're doing their best to tell us the truth and, and not just pushing some agenda that we that we don't share so yeah i really i really don't like official misinformation we got to we, we got to get rid of it
0: no no i completely agree i mean that's that's the only way of, of keeping these institutions reliable and therefore people trust them like for instance there's a one of the best determinants of, of whether conspiracy theories are prevalent in any given country is the degree of corruption and mistrust that there is. So in countries in which there is less trust in institutions, then conspiracy theories flourish. Even if they're not like, correct conspiracy theories, but this general atmosphere of, well, I'm, no, I'm not going to trust what the government is telling me, is really very deleterious. obviously. So, yeah, no, I mean, they have to be absolutely called out, yeah.
1: Okay, yeah, finally... I'm curious to consider quickly ways that AI or LLMs could improve our ability to figure out the truth and, and have productive conversations online or, or even, even in real life, maybe. Um, three ideas that occurred to me in prepping for this interview are because, firstly, you could imagine that. In future, every social media post on an important, you know, controversial political topic could have an individualized fact check next to it. so Or, or even a reasoning check where, where, where the LLM tries to point out ways that the argument being presented might not hold together or yeah, could contradict like a known known claims on Wikipedia or something. That, that might not have to be mandatory, but social networks could give a boost to posts that opt into that kind of fact checking or reasoning checking system. Another option would be having the opposite of misinformation bots on social media. So you could counter misinformation with information bots that are just as cheap and just as numerous and prolific and they try they're, they're programmed to do the opposite to try to make useful points as politely as they can and, and in principle I don't see why fighting fire with fire in this way should be impossible um, and you know the information bots might attract more followers in as much as people care about the truth and can distinguish it at all because that would be like good sources of information I mean, I mean it does require that people do it it does require that someone put in the effort that do the legwork but uh, but it's, I don't know, it seems like a promising idea and then I guess finally you could have LLMs working to identify misleading AI generated accounts and flagging them for removal or reducing exposure. And again, I kind of don't see why a fence should be defense here. Um, it seems like you could use, a, I don't know, set a thief to catch a thief. Yeah, what, what do you make of those ideas?
0: No, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think that a lot of people have speculated about the negative consequences, potential consequences of LLMs on, on, on the informational environment. Even if if they exist, I, I would guess that they would be uh, they would be small by comparison with the positive consequences. Like, I mean, as a rule, I mean, when you have a technology that makes transmitting information easier, there are going to be bad agents that are going to use that for, for bad purposes. But I can't think of a single case in which they have made things worse in the aggregate. Uh, and I think, as, as you were saying, there's a lot of potential for these technologies to help spread information. Like, you know, if, if they could write, you know, automatically suggest like community notes on, on, on Twitter, uh, for instance, that might be helpful. I mean, what would be interesting would be, to see how the informational environment segregates then on that basis. Because you might imagine that, and some people are not there necessarily to just have the most accurate information to to put things nicely. And so they might not want every one of their posts to be flagged saying, ah, actually that is not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yep, they yep. might find that somewhat annoying. And so they might just go somewhere else. So then there's the question, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, but at least it's 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 plausible now to imagine a context in which people could have a social network like Twitter, in which uh, you have a relatively efficient and automatic fact-checking mechanism, which has never been possible so far because it's so demanding in man hours or right? too expensive. Yeah,
1: yeah, I'm I'm a little bit more nervous than you. I think uh, I and and I'm I'm glad that there are people trying to predict ways that this could go. That like what negative effects could it have? Because like in this case, I think this is this is an example where. There are some ways that it will be harmful, but I think that they can be addressed as long as people uh, stay abreast of ways that of things that are going wrong and they, and they look for defences, they look for ways for society to adjust in order to, to make this stuff better. So, so you, uh, for example, it is true, like now you can potentially fake video or images. And so people are trying to come up with responses to that where they track the providence of images and video better in order to be able to more distinguish what comes from a trustworthy source and not. Um, but that does require someone to do that. Uh, someone actually has to notice that this is an issue and, and address it. And so that's why I'm always glad to see people working to fix problems, even though I think they are fixable because someone someone has to do it. Someone has to do it. Yeah. <laughs> someone has to do it. Exactly. Right. Right. Uh, and so like likewise, you could imagine a world in which people like try to do the things that I just listed and other better ideas that they might come up with. Or we could be lazy and not do it. And then maybe the then maybe the negative effects would outweigh the the, the positive
0: effects. Yeah. But you know then again looking back, I mean there have been people who've done the right things, so let's just hope that that trend, you know, keeps going. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Final question. Um,
1: what, uh, this is sl- slightly predictable, but uh, what, what's the dumbest thing you've ever been persuaded of, and, <laughs> and, 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 and why did you let it happen?
0: So okay, this is so yeah. I hope that most listeners are not going to make it that far because if they if they hear that, then they're going to discount <laughs> everything that, that precedes it. So uh when I was, I guess, in my early twenties, we're watching. Uh, um, the news on TV with a friend, and they said that in in football in soccer, they had an issue that not enough goals were being scored, which is kind of true, I guess. And so when uh, they were fixing, they were they were going to fix that by attaching an elastic band between the 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 bar of the of the goalpost and the and the goalie, yeah, to make it harder for the goalie to move, so that more more goals would be scored. <laughs> And so yeah, we, it was it was an, an April April's first uh, joke. Yeah, uh, but for a short time, it's like we were we were really uh, really annoyed, like what? But that's that's insane. <laughs> so I, I yeah, and the excuse I guess is I was I was probably quite high, but, <laughs> 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 but so I don't know what what the counterfactual was.
1: So we can still trust you as long as you're not high right now. Uh, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> you have to trust me on this. But, yeah. All right. My guest today has been uh, Hugo Mercier. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Hugo.
0: Thank you. That was great.
1: If you found that episode interesting, here's a couple of others that are related to one theme or another. For a quite different take on misinformation, we've got episode 88, Tristan Harris on the need to change the incentives of social media companies. On how to form beliefs on just all kinds of everyday issues, we've got episode 39, how much should you change your beliefs based on new evidence, Spencer Greenberg on the scientific approach to solving difficult everyday questions. On how easy it is to become less informed the more you read and supposedly learn, we've got episode 172, Brian Kaplan on why you should stop reading the news. On whether the impacts of AI are in general being overrated or underrated, we've got episode 161, Michael Webb, on whether AI will soon cause job loss, lower incomes, and higher inequality, or the opposite. And then on misunderstanding how typical voters form their opinions, uh, we've got episode 121, Matthew Iglesias, on avoiding the pundit's fallacy and how much military intervention can be used for good. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell, with mastering and technical editing by Marla Maguire, Simon Wonsua, and Dominic Armstrong. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together, as always, by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.